This is Jocko Podcast number 165 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I've said that war is the ultimate teacher. And I think it's also true to say that war is the ultimate revealer. It reveals a side of people that would not normally be allowed to come out. Because in war, there's so much happening. There's so much pressure. There's so much emotion. And it's all so intense. And I saw people change. And I don't want to make this overly dramatic and in most cases I'm not talking about some big dramatic transformation that a person goes through but I am talking about changes and the changes were often visible visible things that would be out of character for someone they'd start acting a different way sometimes negative and sometimes positive there might be someone who's temper gets quick starts to flare up there might be someone that becomes more understanding more forgiving some people were happier in combat and some were just absolutely stressed to the core and when i look back now it becomes very clear that there were some I'll call them oscillations in my own attitude. There were some times when I had to reel myself in. I definitely try and stay professional at all times. That's kind of what I do. I try to play the game. I try not to get emotional. That's just how I try and roll. But I could feel it sometimes starting to come apart a little bit. And I would have to breathe mentally, mentally breathe, consciously pull the pieces back together. So I don't lose my temper. I don't lose my composure. I, and I, I know that that's a good quality. It's one that I saw other leaders enact, and I thought that that was a positive quality, and it's one that I tried to emulate. And I got pretty good at emulating that quality. But sometimes on deployment, I really had to focus on that. I had to focus on keeping my composure. I had to focus on not getting emotional. I had to detach and tell myself to settle down and keep it together. And it's not easy to do. And some people have a hard time doing that. And they get short-fused and they lose their temper at the drop of a hat once they're under the stress of sustained combat. Others will not do that. Others will go numb and they'll just kind of turn off. And I tried to stay balanced. 
not to completely turn off my emotions, but at the same time not get emotional. But I had to think about that. I had to consciously think about that. And there were other things that I noticed about myself, especially when I look back. One thing I noticed is that the little things, they, they really didn't matter anymore. They lost things of little importance, pretty much lost all importance. If no one was dead and no one was wounded, then things were going to be okay. That's how it was for me. And some people go in the opposite direction. They start to lose their mind over little meaningless things. And what they're doing when they lash out in those situations is they're, that's how they're letting out the seething, all-encompassing stress that they're feeling. Another thing I noticed is that I'm normally very tactful when I communicate with people up and down the chain of command. And it's pretty natural for me. I've been doing it for so long. I'm thinking about what I'm saying. I'm making sure I'm saying the right things and that they're being understood correctly. I understand the importance of communicating from a leadership perspective. But during combat deployments, I can tell you, I had to think a little bit more. I had to put a little bit more thought into what I was saying because the urge I was fighting against often was this urge just to be offensively blunt, just blunt, and really even condescending or sarcastic or patronizing or snide or mocking or cutting because there is some level of madness in war. There just is. I mean, let's face it. You're going to go out and you're trying to kill people and they're trying to kill you. And your friends are trying to kill their friends and their friends are trying to kill your friends. That's not normal. That's, if you take that out of context, that's just madness. And that madness in war, it can creep into your head and then very easily it can creep out of your mouth if you let it. And these were all these types of things, they, they, they happen to me, they, they happen to everyone. I think I had a pretty good handle on it and some people handle it better, some people handle it worse. The, the combat situations I was in, there's people that have gone through infinitely harder combat scenarios for all of mankind, from the history of mankind. Everyone in these situations is going to have to react to them in some way. Everyone's gonna be impacted by that madness of war. And like I said, they're gonna react in different ways depending on who they are, depending on their background, depending on their personality. But the war itself is going to reveal. It's gonna reveal strengths and weaknesses. It's gonna reveal fears and regrets. It's gonna reveal ego and selflessness. And when we see death, when we face death, when our friends and our comrades are wounded and maimed and killed, that has an effect. 
And you might think, how hard do I have to pull in on the reins of my own fury and hatred and murderous thoughts? When young man after young man is sent home in a flag-draped coffin, I can tell you I had to pull in those reins hard. And I wasn't alone. I was surrounded by men with the same vengeful thoughts. But those thoughts have to be tempered and they have to be controlled or else everything falls apart. But those thoughts get revealed because of war. And war reveals things about us that otherwise might slip by. Things we might not want to share. Thoughts that we might not even know are a part of us. But they are a part of us. And in the end, war ultimately reveals who we are. It reveals our nature and thereby reveals human nature itself. It reveals our psychology. And you can imagine that understanding all these different actions and reactions from from your subordinate leaders, from your commanders, from your troops, from yourself. There's no way to effectively lead without some understanding of all these people and their nature. People that you must work with in order to accomplish the mission, in order to win. And while that is crystal clear in war, it applies to every undertaking. It applies to everything that you try and do, knowing the people you work with, understanding the people you work with, knowing and understanding your enemy, knowing and understanding yourself, knowing and understanding psychology, and human nature and the better you can do that the better you will perform as a team and as an individual and especially as a leader and we spent the last podcast talking about the first part of a book called psychology for the fighting man what you should know about yourself and others. It's a very straightforward book written in 1942, right as World War II was kicking off. And on the last podcast, we covered the early sections in the book about things like putting the right people in the right jobs, about the importance of training, about the best ways to teach and learn, how to become more efficient. And today we're going to dive into the second half of the same book, 
which gets into some incredibly insightful and some incredibly revealing topics. So let's go back to the book. Kicking off with this section, it's actually not the, this isn't actually the second half of the book. This is probably the last third of the book that we're getting into. And starts off with this section that's about morale. Here we go. Morale depends on the incentives to human action, on men's motives, on their emotions, and how they react to their emotions. It can be developed in a military unit by the control of those psychological conditions which determine men's desires and conduct and affect their attitudes toward one another and toward the great undertaking of winning a war. And then it rolls in to talk about incentives. Some of these are pretty obvious, starting off with hunger. Hunger is a mess call most sure to be heard. Pain is an alert seldom missed. The most primitive incentives for action which man shares with other animals are his bodily needs, hunger, thirst, sex, the need for rest when he is tired, the need for activity when rested, the desire to escape from pain, extreme heat, extreme cold, and other intolerable conditions. It might be possible to control men or animals by the use of these incentives. You might make a man go hungry until his work is done and then let him eat as a reward. You might make a man fight by lashing him and then letting up on him as a reward for fighting. But that isn't the way our army works. Whenever possible, it supplies enough food and rest to its soldiers and makes other provisions for their comfort so that they stay in good spirits and can do their work well. But in areas... But in fighting areas, it's not always possible to provide these physical comforts. When food or water is short, when the weather is too hot or too cold, when it becomes impossible to bathe and shave, when bombs and shells drive sleep away and fatigue makes a man, makes effort a torture, problems of combat morale arise. And then some other incentive is required beyond their animal need to keep men going to make them determined to keep fighting unto death. When the primitive needs are no longer enough, it is the social incentives which help a fighting man do his utmost. There are many social needs, here are some of them. So, interesting way to kick it off, and those are so obvious, we all know those things. We all know that we, if we're hungry, we all know if we, we, we try and escape from pain. We all know we try and find comfort if there's discomfort. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I know you especially know that. Sure, a little bit. But when those things, you can't always provide those things. And it's, you know what's really interesting? We're talking about, it's just words, right? It's just words in a book. We're talking about to make them determined to keep on fighting unto death just words in a book right now, but if you think about, well, this is World War II, we're getting ready to go and hundreds of thousands of men are going to go and fight into the death. And these primitive needs aren't gonna be enough to drive them. So here's some social needs that people have. Number one, desire for social approval, admiration, recognition, and appreciation. 
two, desire for security, safety, escape from danger, and disapproval or fears of all kinds. Number three, the desire for power, mastery, domination, superiority, and self-assertion. Number four, desire for adventure, new experience, freedom, escape from futility, humdrum. Number five, desire for personal response, companionship, friendship, love. Number six, desire to help and protect others, especially the weak and helpless, such as children. Number seven, desire for a successful achievement, completeness, effectiveness, the desire to do a good job. Number eight, desire to destroy interference with other desires, aggression, and rage. That's a, that's a, it's when you hear, when I'm reading that list, I think of little people that I've known and you know what was driving them. I remember thinking this. So you think of, you think of the military as a group of people. Even I do. It's a group. You think of, oh, it's an army. It's a battalion. It's a brigade. It's a company. You think of it as a, as a unit that's working together. But what I will tell you is these, these desires right here are so important for the conduct of warfare because when you get down to a battalion level, a company level, a platoon level, there's individual human beings that are driving that thing forward. And if you didn't have a leader in charge, or it doesn't necessarily have to be the platoon leader, but if you didn't have a platoon sergeant, if you didn't have someone in that organization that was gonna drive this thing forward, it wouldn't go anywhere. Mm. When, when we do operations overseas and we'd work with the conventional forces overseas, there was a guy that was making these things happen, that had, that was driven by these types of things. Whether, whether some guy wanted to shine and, and get, get uh, noticed and he's gonna take his platoon out or whether he realized, hey, the best thing I can do for survivability is to get aggressive and go take the fight to the enemy. All these, all these things, you can see where they come into play and you see the same thing in, a, in civilian organizations. When you see what's driving me, you know, you ever hear the question of like a, a rich person, whatever that means, but how much is enough, mm. right? There's very few people that become financially successful that go, okay, you know what? I'm good. Yeah. Okay. I've got two houses, three houses. I've got a bunch of really nice cars. I've got a bunch of money in the bank. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm, I'm done. That doesn't happen very often. Mm. The folks that they they achieve there, and then they look up and go, "Wait, I can do some more." And wh- whether that's you know just completing a job, like it says, the desire to do a good job, or the desire to help other people. Mm-hmm. Hey, the more money I get, the more I can give to other people. Like these things are real, and they really drive. And so when you see a, a organization get stagnant. You gotta look and say to yourself, which, how can we fuel this desire? How can we mm-hmm. allow this mission to a- answer some of these desires? Mm-hmm. Going back to the book, when a military leader calls a man by name and gives him a simple word of commendation for some task well performed, he's appealing to at least two or three natural incentives. Calling a man by name shows personal interest, which almost every soldier likes. 
The commendation is social approval. If the soldier has been feeling insecure, not quite sure of things, then perhaps his sense of security is established by the event of his leader's approval. He also has assurance that he has accomplished a job well done. That's, think about that, all it is, and I've talked about that a bunch on here, where I say, you know, sometimes leaders don't realize how powerful it is to say, hey, Echo, really good work on that last video. People don't realize, or hey, Echo, really good job holding security last night on that position. Mm-hmm. And I've said it's powerful. Now it's here's why. Here's some of the things that that feeds that person. These desires that they want satisfied get fed when a leader steps down and and gives a commendation like that. Back to the book. Social approval is a strong motive in human affairs, and in general, praise is much more effective than blame. Commendation can get results when bawlings out fail. By bawlings out, they mean yelling at people. Reproof tends to leave resentment. This is so smart. Blame is often, however, effective when used in private and in moderation against a man whose quality of performance is high, for he will work hard to avoid such criticism. I've always, I I had the luxury of oftentimes working with people where if they mess something up, if they got in trouble, whatever, you didn't need to, I didn't need to do anything. I could, I could basically say, I heard what happened. (laughs) <laughs> and that was enough. Like they were just never, yeah. they were never going to stop until they corrected that in my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> a man wants to count, to amount to something, to feel that he is worthwhile and appreciated. Promotion, citations, and distinctions of all kinds help serve this purpose. Fear of the disapprovals of others or some other form of punishment works as an, an incentive, but is not as good as a steady thing. Troops coerced into action by a snapping martinet become anxious, disgruntled, jittery. There is a loss in morale, in initiative, in judgment, even in skill. Men do better in groups, whether fighting or working. And one thing that's interesting, and we're gonna get to, there's a section in this part of the book called leadership. And there's a definite dichotomy, and you can you can hear it here, starting to talk about how it, it sometimes it leans towards the stereotypical military idea of like if I tell you what to do, you do it. Mm-hmm. But every time it leans towards that, it counters it. It mm-hmm. counters it and says, "Look, if people don't respect you, look, if you're not, if people don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, like it, it always comes back to the true leadership." Even though it it brushes up and it converses about some of the stereotypical military leadership, it it certainly every time counters them with real, true leadership. Mm. Back to the book. A soldier's desire to do a good job, his sense of workmanship is helped whenever he can be allowed to understand the nature of the whole undertaking which he is contributing, to which he is contributing. A successful leader never assigns tasks blindly when he can reveal their larger purpose. By allowing his men to see the significance of their own smaller jobs, he dignifies the lesser tasks by relating them to the large one. This is always make sure your people understand why they're doing what they're doing. That's what it is. A successful leader never assigns tasks blindly. He wants to make sure that the subordinates understand the nature of the whole undertaking to which he's contributing. This stuff is so important. 
Continuing on, morale is the capacity to stay on the job, especially a long, hard job with determination and zest. It is the opposite of apathy. Morale needs good health, physical and mental. Unless the body is well and vigorous, it is pretty hard to endure hardship and keep up enthusiasm. Fatigue and illness sap mental vigor and moral strength. The body does influence the mind. You everyone hear that? The body does influence the mind. Yet there is more to morale than that. Men can carry on with strong determination, sometimes even with zest, through injury, disease, and physical privation. For that sort of morale, a man needs self-confidence and conviction. He needs to feel sure of himself and emotionally secure. While there are no simple rules for obtaining this sense of security and confidence when the world is blowing up around your ears, some of the conditions that bring it are known. It helps to have grown up in a home where there was no quarreling or jealousy. It helps to have friends and to be working or fighting in a group. It is essential for the job to seem important for it can be related to some of the incentives to human action. A thoughtful man may need to see the job in its larger relations, to fit into a philosophy of life, to make it a means of satisfying his own code of what is good and desirable. He may need to take a long-range view that extends beyond his own lifetime and perhaps into another world. All incentives to human action are potential Morale builders. There is a back and forth relation between work and morale. Not only does morale make soldiers work and fight, working and fighting keep up their morale. <laughs> somebody in the last the last podcast, somebody on Twitter just just hammered out quotes from this book, <laughs> and I re- I was reading them, rereading them because I'm reading this whole book and I'm just rereading these quotes, and there's so many awesome quotes in this book. You could just make a book of quotes from just this book. That's one of them though, right? Not only does morale make soldiers work and fight, working and fighting keep up their morale. It's 100% true. Especially in times of emotional stress, as in battle, does a man need to, to be doing things. As for work alone, men are not naturally lazy. People like to work. Enforced idleness is a cruel punishment. It has been shown again and again that persons with useful jobs to do in air raids are unlikely to be afraid of bombs. They are busy and the morale is good. They carry on because they have important and useful work to do. Actually, they feel secure, even in an air raid, which is a strange place to feel secure. It is the same with a trained soldier in the midst of combat. This, that stuff is brilliance right there. That's brilliance. That's why you have standard operating procedures. That's why you have an immediate action drills when when you get attacked by the enemy. Everyone knows what their job is supposed to be. It doesn't even allow them time to be scared. I I have one parachute failure where I pulled my reserve parachute and I got to the ground and people oh. <laughs> you, you know, because all my buddies that I was jumping with at the time, we were all kind of the same level, yeah. except for maybe one guy that had a ton of jumps. But all my friends, all my platoon mates were all, bro, you pulled your reserve? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And they were like, bro, was it sketchy? Mm. And I was, you know, I said, I thought about it and said, no. 
I did what we trained to do. Yeah. You know, arch, look, grab, look, grab, pull, pull, check, check. I did what the procedure says to do. That's what I was thinking about. That's what I was focused on. That's what I did. Yeah. So when you have, some, if I didn't have a protocol to follow, <laughs> yeah. it's like my parachute gonna fail. I'm gonna die in 12 seconds or oh, whatever yeah. it is. Like you're dead in 12 seconds if something good doesn't happen real quick. Yeah, bro, that's it's so not true. even 12 seconds because you're at 2,000 feet and you're falling. Yeah, it's not very much time. You're gonna be dead pretty quick is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I didn't even think about it. And I got to the ground and it wasn't, it's like my adrenaline didn't even move. Right. Because you're doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah, like you, man, and you, and obviously we're thinking about it, not in the situation. So yeah, it's all scary. I mean, you pull one shoot, it doesn't work. And I'm saying outside of the, the procedure, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, I'm saying the facts of the, the reality of the right. situation. You pull one shoot, it doesn't work. Proof that parachutes don't work to you right then and there. Proof. Oh, if you want to start digging a fear and, hole, and now, you can dig one real deep <laughs> that's right what now. I'm talking about, though. And then now, guess how many shoots you only have left? Yeah, one. one. You already witnessed firsthand yeah. one shoot failing. So far on this you parachute know? jump, you're 100% fail rate 100%. with your parachutes. Yep, and you only got one more <laughs> chance. one left. Yeah, within 10 seconds or whatever, yeah. you know. So really, your brain is like, yeah, so this is it, you yeah. know, if if you think of it that way. But, yeah, if your mind is occupied with, okay, procedure, 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 and then you just do, 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 yep. and then it's like you don't have time to be scared about anything nope. unless, there, you know, if the second one fails, then yeah, it's different, obviously. But yep. Um, you know, you, you, yeah, your mind doesn't have room to start making all these, uh, these fearful assessments, you know, action, taking action is a real positive thing in so many situations. When you start feeling fear, you got to do something, you yeah, got to step up and do something. It's like, you know, in, in like a jujitsu tournament or, or whatever, like a competition situation. Um, and I would imagine it'd be like this if you, if you're talking publicly or whatever before you do it like okay before when i used to compete a lot in jiu-jitsu before i'm like oh my gosh like you're anxious and you just yeah. like you, the feeling beforehand is like way different than of when course. right when he says start when he says start you don't you're now, not even nervous anymore yeah, yeah which you do every day anyway yeah. kind of thing and because you know what to do and that's what your mind is on you're not feeling like even though you don't even know this guy mm-hmm. you never even seen this guy before so you don't know <laughs> what mystery this guy holds you know i'm just saying that's kind of what you're thinking yeah. before, before you go on you know but once once you yeah for sure hesitation is the is the moment that you have to overcome for fear yeah and action will help you do that Back to the book. If an officer wants to assess the morale of his own unit, there are at least two things for him to do. He can listen. Men will talk when permitted or encouraged to, and they will sometimes speak freely. When they do, they give their leader information that will enable him to answer these questions. Do the troops feel like they are being well-trained, well-led? Do they think their weapons are adequate? Do they want to try and get the enemy? Are they proud of their unit? Do they have suggestions for its improvement? Do they have, do they think they get fair treatment, fair chances for advancement? Are they worrying about anything back home? Or what about what will happen when the war is over? From the answers to questions like these, an officer can usually estimate accurately the morale of his unit. He can also study the behavior of his men. Are they ready to volunteer for special duty? Are, they frequent, are there frequent violations of discipline? How many are AWOL? 
How many in the guardhouse? What is the rate of venereal disease? How do they receive bad rumors? Are there many fights? And are the fights based on religious or racial differences? Morale building is the primary task of leadership. Actually, it says a primary task. Morale building is a primary task of leadership. The leader, any leader trying to improve the morale of his unit will find these rules helpful. So, one of the main things you have to do as a leader is keep morale up. No doubt about that. If your morale falls apart inside of a team, you're in a bad situation. And here's some things to help you improve morale. One, make each man feel he is needed by his unit, that his job is important. Two, never let a man forget that he is a soldier and that a soldier of the United States Army is an important and respected person. Three, make it very clear that the unit has its own important function in winning the war. Four, encourage the expression of pride in achievements of the unit. Five, give commendation and encouragement when it can when it can sincerely and appropriately be given for fair appreciation usually works better than condemnation. Six, never belittle or humiliate a man in front of others except when a military emergency as in battle may require quick correction. When rebuke is necessary, do it in private and make make it clear that it is the act that is punished, not the man. Seven, keep idleness at a minimum, but make recreation possible. A little dichotomy you have to balance there. Train each man in every useful task and action that actual combat will require and teach him that these habits will reduce his fear when combat comes as well as make him a trained and able fighter. Nine, let men work together in groups whenever possible because the social relation increases effectiveness and 10, Let the soldier on isolated duty feel that he is an indispensable man, not a forgotten one. Great advice there. How often, and this is something I've talked about, I always, the way I used to say this is I I would say I want every person in my platoon to think that their job is the most important job in the SEAL platoon, Hmm. right? I want the point man to think, hey, point man. If you, if you don't know where you're going, everyone's lost. You got the most important job. Mm. And the platoon commander, hey, this is your patrol. You're the guy in charge. You're the got the most important job. And the radio man, hey, radio man, if something goes sideways out there, it's you with your ability to communicate with air assets and other support elements that are going to save everyone. Mm. You're the most important guy. And then the medic, hey, if someone gets shot, you're the guy. It's like I go right on down the line. Yeah. Everyone thinks, and and what's, what's, I'm not, I'm not lying to them. Yeah. I'm actually telling them the truth. I'm actually telling them the truth. In critical situations, someone in that platoon is going to be the most important person. It's not the same all the time. I'm yeah. telling them the truth. Mm-hmm. The truth is, if you're the radio man and you're getting overwhelming enemy fire and that radio man can reach out and drop bombs on the enemy, he's the most important guy in the platoon without question. Mm. If you're trying to get to an extract point who's gonna get to get your platoon out of there, then the point man is the one that knows where he's going and no one else knows, that point man's the most important person. Yeah. When you're in a machine gun fight, when you're in a gunfight, 
It's the machine gunners that are gonna lay down fire and allow you to cover and move and close with and destroy the enemy. It's the machine gunners, most important. You take away the machine guns and a SEAL platoon, you got a real problem on your hands. Mm. So I'm not lying to anyone, Mm -hmm. I'm telling them the truth. The truth is you have the most important job in this platoon. That's the truth. Mm. And when people hear that, man, it's important to them. Oh yeah. And he goes back, the, the book goes back again, making sure that everyone understands how important what the, what the unit is doing to the strategic victory. And talking about pride and unit expression, the, 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 we were overseas and like army units would have their battle streamers that they bring from, they bring historical documents and hang them up on the wall in their, in their makeshift op center. Mm. From World War II, they're hanging them up. Poster yeah. or newspaper clippings from World War II. And they're hanging them up. This is our unit. Yeah. This is what we've done. We are upholding tradition. We have pride in what we do. It's awesome. Yeah, It's a real thing. Yeah. Next little section is about zest. Zest is the fabric from which morale is made. Zest, vigor of spirit, love of life coupled with a willingness and eagerness to risk life itself in a good undertaking. A spirit of high adventure that turns a difficult mission into a rare chance to show the stuff of which men are made. This is the weapon that makes a military unit unbeatable. Think of a mission as a rare chance to show the stuff of which men are made. Highly motivated. Zest depends first upon physical fitness. It demands a sharp appetite that will make a soldier eat plentifully and digest his food. It requires physical exercise that brings plenty of oxygen into the lungs and plenty of red blood circulating to the brain and back to the hands and legs. If a man is to meet the sunrise with any sort of spirit for the new day, he must have slept at night sound and undisturbed by anxious dreams within him or by vermin in his bed. Fatigue can quickly reduce a fighting spirit. The symptoms of mental fatigue, whether in the air or on the ground, are a staleness, a lack of interest in the job to be done, lack of enthusiasm, enthusiasm, a heaviness of limbs, eyelids, even of the will that makes it well nigh impossible to drag through the day's duties, and with it, shortness of temper, irritability, and the blues. All leaders have to be constantly on guard against this insidious spiritual fifth columnist among their men and among themselves. Regardless of how invaluable the man, when fatigue is made at this attack on his fitness, he must have relief. He must be required to sleep, to take respite from responsibility, to get away from the strain he has been under. Otherwise, the price is a psychological casualty. And the more important the man, the greater the cost to the army. Make sure your people are getting some rest as much as you can. And again, this book counters these things all the time by saying, hey, there's sometimes where you're not going to, your people aren't going to be able to rest. That's the mm-hmm. way it is. So then what you have to do is you have to understand, you have to understand that. That's what this book is about. You have to understand now what are the risks involved. Mm-hmm. Now we've got a unit that is severely fatigued and battle worn. What are the risks? They're not going to be able to fight as well as they did when they were fresh. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that, perhaps you send them in the front line to another battle. 
if you know it, you take another group that was in the rear and you send them to the front line, you let the guys that are fatigued be the reserves. That's why you have to know and understand these things. Mm. Back to the book, excessive physical discomfort can also eventually deaden all zest for life and for battle. Men can fight with their socks stiff with dirt or frozen to their feet with hands so swollen and cracked that they can barely pull a trigger. They have fought when the baths are unknown and shaves are almost as scarce, when marching must be done through seas of mud and clothing never dries, and when the eyes are cut and lungs are choked with never settling clouds of dust and sand, men have fought and are fighting under such conditions. But it takes an unquenchable spirit to keep its zest when things are like this. Whole armies have shown this spirit but such conditions prolonged, dead and zest in the end, and therefore must be relieved whenever possible. When a man has his first encounter with the immediate threat of death, when he must kill and see men killed, when he must steel himself to hear the unheeded cries of the mortally wounded and endure the stench of battle, a man may become sick in his very vitals. He may lose interest in his food, and yet this will be no sign of squeamishness. The toughest of leathernecks may feel intensely the inward revolting and horror the battlefield can provoke. The defenses against these physical and mental foes of the spirit are a faith in good leaders, a loyalty to them and to comrades, and a shoulder-to-shoulder feeling of solidarity with the other men of the outfit. I can go anywhere and stand anything my captain and the rest of my outfit can. Got to set that good example. Fear, ally or traitor. The first battle, the first experience of having an enemy machine gun aimed at you, the first time an airplane swoops low to lay its deadly eggs in your particular patch of ground. That is an experience anticipated by the young soldier with mingled dread and eagerness. He is eager by that time to get at the enemy. He has learned a great deal about the science of war and wants to use this knowledge to wipe out the enemy and gain victory. But he always wonders, every man does, just how he will behave when the time comes. He doesn't feel like a hero. If he is honest, completely honest with himself, he knows he will be scared, terrified. The experienced soldier who has been through all this the first time and many other times has found out for certain that every man going into battle is scared. His hands tremble, his throat is dry, he must swallow constantly because his heart is in his mouth. He does idiotic things like looking at his watch every few seconds or examining his rifle a hundred times to be sure it is loaded. The soldier green to battle may think he is the only one so disturbed, but it is true of all the veteran as well. And it is true of the enemy. Germans and Japs get just as scared as Americans and British. The bad moments do not come during actual combat, however, but in the time of tense waiting just before. As you just talked about, Echo. As soon as the frightened man is able to go into action, to do something effective against the enemy, especially if it involves a violent physical action, his fright is apt to be dispelled or forgotten because he is too busy fighting to remember it. And this is great propaganda to talk about 
because what they're basically they're giving this book to young soldiers that are getting ready to go and fight mm. and he's what they're telling him is look you're gonna be scared everyone's scared it's fine mm. so that way they don't get scared and freak out because yeah. they're scared because they're scared yeah <laughs> Airplane pilots who had distinguished themselves in action against the Japanese said when asked whether they were scared during those moments of acute peril, why, I don't know. There was too much to do. We didn't have time to think. Most were scared at first, wrote a member of a torpedoed ship. Sure we were, but when the torpedo hit us, we forgot all about it. There wasn't much time, and then there was much work to do. It's another thing when you, and it's going to go into this, but when you're a leader and things are going bad, give people something to do, right? Mm -hmm. Give them a direction. Give them an order. Say, look, all right, this is what we're going to do right now. I don't know about that, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to move all these chairs and get them into this, you know, whatever. You figure out something to do and do it. Encounters with the enemy are most terrifying when they are unfamiliar. The soldier becomes used to gunfire, to explosions, and to the sight and odor of death. Sorry, as the soldier becomes used to gunfire, explosions, and the sight of odor, sight and odor of death, he gradually acquires the power to meet these things more stoically. He does not actually lose his fear, but learns to ignore it sufficiently to keep his attention mainly on the business of combat. And if he has in his trained hands a good weapon, which he knows will put the enemy out of action. This gives him a feeling of confidence, a sense of power that in large measure outweighs his fear. He knows it will soon be the other fellow's turn to be scared. Fear, when experienced, is intensely uncomfortable and seems often to be incapacitating. If the period of fright is prolonged, a man may feel that his nerves are all shot by it. For fear is disintegrating, demoralizing. It shatters morale. The soldier may be rooted to the spot, paralyzed or immobilized by fear. Nevertheless, such awful moments before an attack, when each second seems an hour, may actually be useful to any soldier. They may really add to his efficiency. For fear is the body's preparation for action. The heart pounds faster, blood pumping more rapidly to the arms and legs and brain where oxygen is needed. The lungs do their part by quickened breathing. Blood pressure goes up. Adrenaline, which is nature's own shot in the arm, is poured liberally into the bloodstream. Subtle changes in body chemistry, automatically affected by powerful emotion, serve to protect the soldier in action in ways he would never think of if he had to plan them himself. His blood clots more readily. He loses temporarily sense of fatigue even though he may have been dog-tired. It is sometimes difficult for a tense, frightened soldier to get started into combat. To begin the action will relieve his fear. That part is taken care of by army training and discipline. Months of training have taught the soldier to respond from habit to definite battle orders, even though in battle commands often cannot be given as in training. It has become second nature to him to carry out his own job as a member of the fighting team. So there you go, this is also important. When you recognize, when you know what's gonna happen, it, it allows you to not be scared that you're scared. Right, so all of a sudden your breathing starts going faster, and you feel the adrenaline going through your system. If you don't know what's happening, then it might it might catch you off guard. Yeah. But if you know what's happening, well, cool. That's yeah. my adrenaline. Mm-hmm. If you you know when you have a when you feel adrenaline actually go through your system, mm-hmm. 
like um, let's say you're driving and somebody pulls out in front of you, almost crashed into, right. into him, right? Mm-hmm. And you can you can feel the adrenaline go down your arms and your legs. Mm-hmm. Have you felt that before? Oh, yeah. So if you don't have any idea what that is and it happens, you, it might scare you a little bit. Yeah. Once you know what it is, you're kind of you're kind of good with it. Yeah, it's like you. It's how people. I mean, I don't know if I don't know the actual process, but you know how like um yeah when you tense up before you do something right and you feel your heart like beating all fast and stuff like that. If you know okay you know I'm I'm getting excited because of this you know event that's yep. big in my mind or whatever. But if you're like if you don't know right. or you're right. like well right. i'm losing it I, th- I feel like i'm losing it right now you yeah. know like if you're i don't know yeah you know if you're about to go skydiving or something different for you obviously but the normal person before right. they jump out of an airplane you know yeah like and, oh my and, gosh i'm losing and, it i can't you know? and that's what's a lot of the military training that you go through is to get yourself con- hey when you when you start fast road roping out of a helicopter when you're rappelling off of a off of the side of a cliff or out of a window in an urban environment or you're parachuting static land parachute free fall parachute all these things that you do when you first start doing them there's like an adrenaline rush and but you just get used to it and so yeah. then by the time you're getting sh- by the time you're getting shot at you're like oh yeah I know what this is I'm good yeah, yeah. I can carry on yeah back to the book no matter how distracted your mind may be by unfamiliar and terrifying sights and smells and sounds you act from sheer force of habit in fact it is habits which take care of a man if he is too frightened to think clearly like the habit of diving for cover when bombs come down then presently you are in action you are fighting you are at last using your force against the foe no more are you a depressed frightened soul fear is forgotten provided you are well trained Good to teach people the how to respond in certain situations. Like even yeah. you know when it comes to the self defense. Hey, if you get attacked, here's what happens. Here's what you do. When they just have that plan, yeah. that's worth a lot. Just yeah. having a plan is worth a lot. Somebody yeah. grabs you here, this is your reaction. Somebody yeah. grabs you there, this is your reaction. You know those things. They if you see them out of context, like if you watch a Gracie self defense video. Mm-hmm. Out of context, you'll say, "Well, it's gonna be hard for that particular movie." It's if you go watch like a McDojo self defense, yeah. then you go, "That's just obviously that's never gonna work." Yeah. But even you watch a Gracie self defense thing out of context, you don't understand it. You might be like, "Oh, I don't know how that's gonna work," yeah. but it's a plan yeah. that you're going to take action. Oh yeah, and it is an effective plan, by the way. It's mm-hmm. not like it's not a good plan, mm-hmm. but the fact that you are going to immediately take action, you're going to respond to the event immediately. Mm-hmm. It's going to put you in a totally different place and yeah. a much, much, infinitely better place than I just got. You know, someone just grabbed me by the head mm-hmm. or by the arm, and I have no idea what to do. Yeah, that's a bad situation. Then that fear is going to rise. If you have a reaction, boom, you go in action. Yeah. And then they t- he talks about like training, right? If you, you know, the well-trained person, it's like you're just so because fam- training is just like repetition, yeah. right? All these different scenarios. So you're so used to it, it's like nothing new. You're so like used to this stimulus or whatever. Okay, remember when you're in elementary school, they do a fire drill every yes. whatever, they ding, ding, yeah. and you just calmly stand up and walk out yeah. in a single file line. You know, it's like it's kind of boring in a way, but. I mean, we never had a fire in my elementary school, but I'm imagining that 
if the once you heard it was a certain it was a specific bell that went on it instead of the regular bell it would go ding 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 it was obviously a fire drill you know when you heard the bell so it was so ingrained in well, in me anyway, I'm sure everyone else felt the same way as a kid. Um, when you heard that, you were like, oh, you just sort of automatically like a yeah. zombie stand up and line up like, per, you know, it was almost like, yeah, it was like so automatic. So I'm assuming that like if a fire actually happened. Your instinct would be to do what you've been do trying it, yeah, to do. Yeah, normally. Yeah, totally. You wouldn't run and scatter and be all crazy yeah. or whatever. You just because you're so, quote unquote, trained just to do it, you know. Completely. I guarantee if you look back in the history of school fires, at some point there was a school fire before they did that training and everyone panicked and freaked out and people died. Yeah. Or maybe people didn't die, but people said, oh, that could have gone bad. And so then, oh, guess what you do? You rehearse it. You train. This bell means stand up, move in this direction, go out this door, assemble in the recess area for head count. Yeah. In fact, I remember in college, someone pulled the fire alarm. Mm -hmm. It It ended up to be a prank, but... Everyone sort of thought that, oh, this building is on fire right now. Really? It was in the middle of the night. I don't think I've ever believed a fire alarm in my whole fire. life. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to think <laughs> if, no, wait, I've been in one situation where there was a legit fire, but I was like completely, everyone just thought I was super cool and calm, yeah, but I was actually just, just didn't, didn't believe, believe it. it. And then finally I was, well, Turn- yeah, we need to get out of here. Yeah. But. Yeah, most fire, because you think about, I've experienced a lot of fire alarms, and there's a very low percentage of them that were real fires. Yeah, yeah, and that's, well, I mean, I guess that's an added element, though. Like, if if you're trained, but you never think it'll ever, ever happen, I I I would think that'd be a little bit different, because almost like you run the risk of when it actually does happen, and you smell smoke, or see the smoke, or see the flames, or whatever, that might introduce an added element that you weren't expecting. You know? Yeah. So that might jam you up. But nonetheless, I think like when you go through it, like I remember there there was a fire, but it was like way in a different building and it was just mm-hmm. procedure. Everyone mm-hmm. evacuate, you know, kind of thing. And we found out it was just later or whatever. So, yeah, I don't think I ever had the stimulus of the fire, but in college or whatever, when, when I did think that it was on fire, I didn't hear it or I mean, I didn't smell it or see yeah. it or nothing like that. You but it was we, legit we on all fire. Thought obviously we're in no threat. Yeah, but because if there's no fire around you, then you think yeah, you have like, time to get out. Yeah, right. But it was still the same. Like no one was panicking. It, I don't it seemed recommend like that, was, but I'm just saying there's no, there's no like what we're talking about here. There's no incentive to run. Yeah, because it's just the alarm and you follow the procedure. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then if you let's say you're just lining up in a single file line calmly because you're supposed to do it calmly. Meanwhile, the guy behind you is like choking and getting his shirts on fire. Bro, you're going to run straight up. I might try and help him, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Give him the old stop, drop, and roll. Stop, drop, and roll. That's old school, yeah. Try and help him out. Not just running for a bro that's on fire. (laughs) Good point. All right. It goes into some specifics here. How to fight fear. One, action dispels fear. Do something. In the time of suspense when men are all ready for action but are waiting for the signal to start, fear is at its height. If the period of waiting is prolonged, perhaps delay until a, a weather changes, the time should be occupied with preparation for action. Fight fear with necessary or manufactured work. 
when expecting combat, when waiting for enemy bombers to return. Manufactured work. <laughs> like, hey, you just got to make something up for people to do. Yeah. Seems busy. Little, seems, yeah. Huh. And it's not hard. In combat, there's always something to get ready, right? So yeah. it's not hard to say, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to set up a couple other bunkers. Let's fill some sandbags. Cool. We're all working. Yeah. There's always a reason. It doesn't even have to be manufactured. It can be real. Mm-hmm. Two, physical contact with friends helps. Men should, if at all possible, stay within sight of in time of peril, but not bunched up enough to become a bomb target. Just the presence of another man not far off with no when no word is spoken minimizes fear. Three, roll calls help. Men in peril should be reminded that they are not alone. For knowledge is power over fear. Surprise is the most important element in battle. Thus, men should be constantly kept informed of the dangers they may meet. That one could be a little, that's a little bit of a tricky one because sometimes people would get a little freaked out when they would hear about what the enemy can do. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I'll tell you one thing. When, when, when we were in Ramadi, there was a lot of IEDs, a lot of IEDs. Yeah. And when, if someone would come to visit us we, and they wanted to come on an operation with us, we would give like the slightly longer IED brief so that they understood the threat. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't always helpful for them psychologically. Mm-hmm. You could see as the brief went on, you could see I would watch the reactions on on people's faces and you could mm. see them start getting really concerned. Yeah. Because it's just, you know, my EOD guy standing notes. Here's the bomb, you know, from this is what it did to this vehicle yesterday. This is what it did to the vehicle the day before. Here's what here's what it looked like. Here's one that they found. Here's one that they did. and it was just, you know, slideshow of bombs. Yeah. In the city that you're about to go into, which is not a big city. It's it's two miles, three miles across. It's not like we're going and there's a small chance. And by the way, there's seven to 10 IEDs detonated a day on route Michigan, one road going across Ramadi. So it was when you tell when people would come to Ramadi and they'd get that brief, it would always be sort of an interesting look on their face. I would see people um, tapping their toe. Uh, shaking their leg, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's oh, like a yeah. nervous thing. I would watch for that, and I'd <laughs> yeah. see people just getting all nervous. Because, hey, it's a real thing. I mean, I get it. But the guys from TU Bruiser were kind of adjusted to it, you know? Mm-hmm. They were adjusted to it. Back to the book. Control of action helps. To be afraid does not mean that a man must act afraid. Oh, this one's so good. To be afraid does not mean that a man must act afraid. Fear is contagious when it is expressed in action. If a man goes to pieces and becomes panicky, he must be removed from the sight of other men if that is at all possible. It is each man's responsibility to control the signs of his own fear if he can so as to spare the others. If he can manage to act as though he were calm, he may actually become more calm. At any rate, the opposite of true is true. Giving into fear tends to increase it. There you go. It's straightforward. Mm-hmm. Don't be shaking your leg during the brief. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Don't show that you're scared because that gets contagious and other people will start feeling like you're afraid. You gotta act like no factor. Whatever. You mm-hmm. think they can blow me up? Bring it. Yeah, bring it. You can't be panicking and freaking out. And each man is responsible to keep 
themselves in check, keep their fear in check. And just because you're afraid doesn't mean you get to act like it. Yeah. Is that kind of like when... When your kids get older, you well, you, when your kids get older, you have to have that conversation with them. You know, have that conversation. Look, look, you don't get to act like you're scared. You don't even mm. get to act like you're mad. That's why we play normal face. Right? Right. You don't get to act like that. Yeah. You think you're going to get hit in the head with this thing? Cool. Deal with it. Yeah. Deal with it on the inside. <laughs> you know, like when your kid, when they're young, young, and they fall down, right? Your kid, your yep. son, yep. daughter, whatever. They fall down. Best thing you can do. Right. Laugh at them. Or, yes. And it's funny because that, that was awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a one that I do, yeah. The, but there's that split second when they fall, mm. they're stunned, they're shocked, to see. and they look at you yep. with like, how what, am I supposed to act right, right now? Exactly right. So if you're like, oh my God, run up to them. Oh my gosh, are you okay? Are they going to start crying uh, every time? That noise that you just made yeah. is, is my wife is the absolute greatest at this noise. <gasps> <laughs> she can make a grown person. Yeah. Make you think that you should start crying and freak oh, out yeah. because oh, yeah. she See. just go, gives the. <gasps> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she does alarm. It. Yeah. She causes oh, yeah. so much alarm. Yeah, I've been married to her for over twenty years. Yeah, and we'll be driving. Oh, just, oh, just worst time to hey, do it. By no, the way, wait, we're we're not we're not talking like a rainstorm on the highway going yeah. sixty miles an hour. We're talking just cruising, just through like a normal area. And I'll just be, you know, relaxed, thinking, sure. paying attention. All of a sudden. <gasps> and you know what she'll say at the end of it? She'll go, look at that car uh, over there. It's yeah. got such a cool. And I'm thinking, darling, yeah. Please, yeah. can you not? I've been telling her not to do this, but it's an instinct that she has. Yeah. It's, a, it's an instinct that my wife has to yes. make this. <gasps> and yeah. it's. And now, you know, my son doing his driving, like he got his license so he can drive. Oh. And he came home the other day. He's like, man, he said, dad, I'm driving with mom and it's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why? What did she do? I was thinking she was driving. He goes, no, I was driving. But I drove by like a a, a, a road Mm-hmm. And she was, <gasps> and yeah, can't do that. Tense, yeah. yeah. So oh yeah, can't do. It. Don't act scared. Don't do it. And and for really, some reason, my wife's that's that's an emotional noise that she makes. It's not fear. It's like right. excitement. It's, it's, yeah, it's everything. Sometimes it's like I see something cute. You know, just something that. <laughs> what does that out. even mean? You know? I see some. Why would you do this if you see something cute? Why would you go? <gasps> Don't do that noise. Uh, yeah. That's a wrong noise. That's, that's that wrong noise, noise means so. I'm about to get embraced for impact. <laughs> that's what that noise means. Yeah. That noise means I'm about to yeah. get T-boned. Yeah. And I have a split second to accelerate out of the kill zone. Yeah. That's what that noise means. It doesn't mean, <gasps> look at that cat. <laughs> Stop yeah. it, woman, yeah. please. Yeah. So. I, and I don't know if that's a, a wife thing or what, because my wife is the same thing, same way. And it actually is exactly what this book said, where you can't like act act scared because it'll cause others to act scared, essentially, right? Yeah. It'll induce panic, whatever, which, because that's what it did. That's what your yeah, wife for did sure. to you. That's what my wife does to me when yeah. she's like, like on the computer and she's like, oh, and then I'm like looking around like, yeah. oh, what's happening? We're like, being did attacked. The kid? Yeah, or something Clearly like we're all about to die in the next 15 <laughs> seconds because you just made that noise. Exactly right. And that's kind of what goes on for a split second. I wonder, because I should have been able to deprogram myself and I have a little, 
have a little bit, but it's not full. It's not a full deprogram. When I hear yeah. it, I still think imminent threat is oh, yeah. is within fourteen seconds of yeah. impact. Yeah, and if not three seconds. Well, yeah, especially when it's out of nowhere like that. Oh, it's like totally it out of nowhere. Is, you know, we're just driving. It's a sunny day. Everything's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. Yeah. Don't make that noise unless yeah. you're unless you see a person with a machete yeah. and it's in the striking position. Yeah. Don't make that noise because that's yeah. what I think. You're I think I'm, I think I think. Freddy Krueger's with behind me with a with Freddy a battle axe, Kruger. getting ready to take my head off. Uh, no, I don't when think I he'd have a, a battle axe. No, I he had them weird fingers. Yeah, yeah, the, the nice on the fingers. But yeah, dang, that's yeah, good advice, hundred percent. You can't. I don't know how much you can train yourself with that though. That's I a, don't know. I think that's a. I think that's a, a genetic programmed noise that heightens yeah. your reaction oh, yeah. and prepares you for combat situations. Yeah, because there's and for like, some reason it's warped into this thing where it can also be triggered to make that noise by a cute cat cute on the stuff. stove, you know, whatever. Yeah, or like her, maybe she forgot something, you yeah. know. Oh, like, yeah, that's <gasps> another one. I forgot to tell you. <laughs> like, you know, our yeah. friends are having a baby or something yeah. like this, you know. No, it won't even be that. It'll be like, <gasps> I forgot to tell you, I got Billy coming over to work on, you know, the yeah. yard yeah. sprinkler. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. So, so we're not now that die. my adrenaline is through the roof, I'm glad that's going to happen. <laughs> Yo. Check. Back to the book. There's another kind of fear that must be endured for days and weeks, perhaps months or years. If men are besieged, cut off from help, deprived of in adequate deprived of adequate defense then the ever-present peril from the enemy may be aggravated by the greater peril of disease famine exposure and there may be little chance for action men in the present war have endured primitive sorts of hardships that would seem to be beyond human endurance in baton on corregidor alone on a rubber life raft for five weeks in blistering sun and drenching storm without food, without shelter, without water, without any aid but their own unquenchable spirit, their fortitude, and their faith. This means terror mixed with despair. The misery cannot be relieved. It can only be endured. Then they must maintain sanity, courage, and life itself by their ingenuity in originating occupations for hands and minds that will relieve the tension and seem to reduce the hazards. And this is the kind of stuff that Captain Plum talked about, just figuring out stuff to do. Like just we're gonna figure out stuff to do. Mm. Whether it's whether it's make teach yourself calligraphy by making an ear waxed a a uh, etch a sketch. Dang. Or whatever. I mean, these guys, those guys figured out things to do. Back to the book. In such trying times and intense moments, a laugh can be a lifesaver. An army officer relating experience of the World War, that's the First World War, tells of a time when badly frightened, untrained soldiers of that war had taken refuge in a roadside ditch against an unforeseen horror. The fire of American guns turned on them by mistake. Panic sent the blood pounding into my head and emptied my stomach of courage. It was bad enough to be shot at by the Boche, but there was no sense in being killed by friendly troops. My men looked wild and fingered their triggers ready to return fire of our other battalion. Something had to be done and done quick, and Captain Wass did it unintentionally, but he still did it. Jackson, he yelled. Yes, Captain, where are you? 
right here across the road. Stand up so I can see you. Captain, Jackson shouted above the crackling roar of machine gun bullets. If you want to see me, you stand up. (laughs) American humor can lick anything. Smothered chuckles ran down the line. Orders were given and listened to. Men wriggled backwards out of the zone of fire. The first to reach the trees dashed down the line of 3rd Battalion, shutting off the guns. So you are going to hear jokes like that, and it is helpful. Continuing, the soldier who deliberately chooses to be blown up in order to wipe out an enemy tank or machine gun nest that would have otherwise cost the lives of his friends has ideals, has indeed all it takes to make a soldier. The commander of a ship who coolly sends away the last lifeboat and goes down with his vessel rather than abandon it while some of his men are helplessly imprisoned in one of its compartments is afraid but governed by something more powerful than fear. That's a good statement, isn't it? Governed by something more powerful than fear. What kind of governance do you have over your own emotions? That's a good question. You may call this force idealism, conscience, religion, philosophy, tradition, code, or even habit. Or you may be modern and call it ideology. Psychologists sometimes call it the triumph of the social over the selfish instincts. They recognize this force as the most potent weapon an army can possess. Men fighting for their homes and armed with this spirit can stand their ground and win against tremendous opposing forces. Next section, why men fight. Lower animals fight from a variety of causes. Some fight because, as beasts of prey, they live by killing and devouring. Animals may fight their own kind in a tussle over a mate. They fight to defend their young, their homes, or their own lives. Some are aggressive and go about seeking what they may devour. Others fight as a last resort when they are cornered. Men, being two-legged animals, may fight for any or all of these reasons. But because they have minds capable of being moved by abstract ideas such as honor, glory, freedom, sympathy, justice, and patriotism, men also fight for what they believe to be right. Greater than fear of injury and death, Napoleon said, is the fear of shame. Before a drafted man throws himself wholeheartedly into his work as a soldier, before the civilian makes up his mind to enlist in the army, he is stirred by he is stirred and influenced by one or perhaps many of the following forces. He may be carried away by men. This is this Jesus laying out why people are in the army, and this is important to understand. If you're a leader of a bunch of people in the army, you got to understand how they ended up there. So if you're in charge of a company, you got to understand how people ended up in the position where they're working for you. Why are they there? How did they end up there? He breaks it down for people that join the army. One, he may be carried away by mass suggestion. An infectious martial spirit spreads through the community, roused by government officials, speakers or writers, flags are waving, bands are playing, drums are beating, and crowds are cheering. Boom. Two, he may become involved in a wave of war hysteria. Like the fervor of martial spirit, war hate is infectious. Men rush to arms at news of the enemy's evil designs or brutalities of a treacherous assault or intended invasion. Three, he may be urged on by strong spirit of adventure. Four, the ambitious self-centered man, especially perhaps if he has been unable to achieve success in civilian life, may see war as an opportunity to gain personal glory and power. Five, he may be driven by his own combativeness. Some men delight in fighting for its own sake. 
Some may even be killers at heart. Because murder is outlawed in civilian life and because in many circles even taking a poke at a man or cursing him freely is frowned upon, some combative men may find their first thrill of release in an attack on the enemy. Six, he may be unconsciously trying to relieve a grouch by violence that is considered legitimate. The man who has spent a lifetime enduring unending series of disappointments, failures, and obstacles, and who is dammed up in himself ever-mounting grievances and resentment may be able to turn all that ill will against the enemy. Seven, he may have joined the army as he would apply for a job. So think about the stark difference like between those couple there. We've got one person that just lo- wants to fight people or one person that feels like they've been a failure and everything and just gonna has an opportunity to take that grudge out against the world, mm. right? I'm a murderer at heart. And then you got another guy, that, hey, I joined because this is, hey, yeah. seems like a good job. <laughs> they can yeah. just pay my GI bill or whatever. Yeah. Eight, he may be a... He may have been driven into army life by regard for public opinion. He may feel keenly the way his friends, especially the girls, regard a military uniform and a fighting man. He may hate the thought of being considered a slacker. Nine, it may be his desire to maintain his own self-esteem that moves him. He may have to end his secret shame at the thought that others are doing the fighting for him. Ten, he... His action may be based on a feeling of oneness with the nation and on faith in the leaders in the nation's leaders. Eleven, he might be acting out of his faith in democracy. Twelve, he might be compelled by his spirit of sacrifice. All these reasons why men join the army, why they accept training in many cases, why they keep on willingly willingly when they go on overseas to a fighting front. Yet by the motives, by then the motives usually change, or some of them do. And here are the chief reasons why a man fights at the front. So there's a little difference here. So this is why they joined, and now it's why they're fighting. And this is something you hear about. It's kind of a, it's a kind of a cliche thing, you know. He's fighting for the guy to his left and to his right. Yeah. This is this is where we're going to go into it a little bit because that that is what it is, and it's true. Yeah. Thirteen in a unit with good morale, he fights out of loyalty to his comrades and his unit. Boom, there it is. This is important though. 14, or he may fight because he is led. Men at the front face danger and are often uncertain what to do about it. This is especially true in a unit with uncertain morale. It's like I said earlier, like sometimes the leaders, if you've got a good leader that's gonna make things happen, you're gonna make things happen. Mm. This is a good one. 15, finally a man may fight because there's literally nothing else to do. And of course, everyone uses the word literally now literally all the time. Everybody? Yeah. And if you take it, if you remove that from your brain to, to make literally mean what it's supposed to mean, mm-hmm. think about the sentence. Finally, a man may fight because there's literally nothing else to do. He and his comrades are in the war and at the front in battle. No one stops to figure out why he should escape from a burning house. So with fighting. So yeah, there's some people like, oh yeah, guess what? You have two choices, fight or die. Yeah. And you're going to fight. Yeah. How men meet defeat. The way a man stands up to a blow partly, of course, depends on how heavy the blow. 
when a man is faced with a very difficult problem or a series of them with any sort of obstacle or frustration when things become too difficult there are three sorts of things he can do he can work at it harder attacking the problem from new angles with increasing vigor he can get mad and attempt to destroy the obstacle or himself or something else and three he can give up in despair and run away in apathy the first way is the way of learning right when what seems like a good plan is hit upon and is tried if this fails there's a signal for more thinking when a good working plan is finally evolved success is achieved and the man has learned so that's that's the best thing to do right you try different solutions all this activity is healthy unless the individual oh there's a little balance there's a little dichotomy here all this activity is healthy unless the individual becomes so engrossed with a single problem, so obsessed by it, that he fails to eat or sleep or pay attention to other necessary problems. Can't get target fixation. Mm. Getting mad over disappointments or failures is generally not profitable. It is particularly hard on the innocent bystander because of the way men have of shifting their grouch from the original obstacle to other persons or things. The man who fails to get a promotion he has been working and longing for doesn't take a poke at the officer who refused to recommend him, much as he would like to have it out with him. Instead, he's likely to kick his buddy in the pants so much as he raise, if he so much as raises an eyebrow. <laughs> Leaders, too, may take it out on unoffending men who then wonder what's eaten him. Aggression may also be turned inward onto the self. Many a man goes about kicking himself, usually figuratively, but sometimes in real self-punishment, such as banging the head or punching or kicking a hard object until the flesh is bruised. Of course, the extreme of self-punishment for disastrous failure or frustration is suicide, but mostly suicide is just giving up. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. This adage may be used to maintain courage, but the process is actually governed by natural law. The number of times a man will attempt to accomplish a certain job or to reach a certain objective is governed in one direction by the importance of that particular success and in the other direction by the effort and pain involved in trying. When the successful achievement means less than the individ- to the individual than the freedom from the strain of trying to attain it, any man will abandon the struggle. Giving up is nature's way of protecting the organism against too much pain. So that's my don't. Once you've banged your head against the wall 44 times, that's enough. You're not going to get through it on the 45th or the 46th or the 47th try. Mm. You need to find a different way. Mm-hmm. It goes on. Giving up may mean defeat, but it does not always mean surrender. In most situations, what is given up is some particular way of reaching the goal rather than a complete abandonment of the objective. This sort of defeat results in thinking, in fresh striving, in eventual progress. A man who has been unable to get a commission in the army may enlist, earn his stripes, and later reach an officer candidate school. Another kind of giving up results in compromise. The original objective is abandoned, but another more easily achieved is substituted. 
And this stuff is, this is this, these are the things that people, people get the impression that, well, from me, well, you just never give up. I mean, like, never compromise. Eh, yeah. It sounds really cool to say that. Yeah. There was no, there was no t-shirt back in the day. Sure. Yeah, it yeah. was for H&K rifles. Yeah. And it said, in a world of compromise, some don't. And it had a picture of like an entry team going into a building. Mm-hmm. And of course, you hear that and you think that's right. No compromise ever. Awesome. Yeah. But here's the problem. No compromise means if you don't win every single time, you will get defeated and destroyed. Because yeah. you're not going to win. And the problem with that is you're not going to win every time. You're not going to win every argument that you have. You're not going to win every idea that you put forth isn't going to be the idea that gets selected. And what you end up being is a person that can't work with anyone else. Yeah. Or you end up a person that has one chance at charging machine gun nest and you go straight forward up the hill towards the machine gun nest and guess what? Everyone dies. Yeah. You you didn't achieve the mission and everyone is dead. Now if you would have said, you know what? We tried. We lost two guys. We backed up. Now we're in covered position and we're waiting for some reinforcements. Yeah. And when the reinforcements show up, here's the plan. We're going to put down covering fire. We're going to maneuver around to the flank or we're going to get a heavy weapon in here and we're going to shoot a bazooka at this thing. Whatever. Yeah. So this when he's one in the book where it says um, give up, it's not giving up. It's more like giving up on a certain. He says thing. giving up does not always mean surrender. surrender. Yeah. So surrender is like I give up on the whole mission. Yes. Essentially, yes. And giving up is like giving up, like just basically stop doing something that's not working, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. We we had this question on the podcast: is when is it okay to quit? Yes, to like define this exact thing. Yeah, the the definition. That's and, kind of. The and thing. I had the conversation with uh, a guy that we both know who was was making a great effort in a business. The business was not being successful the way he had envisioned it, hmm. and it was costing him a lot of money. It was costing him time. He was putting all of his efforts into it, and you know, he literally asked me, "Hey, man, if I." shift to something else is that quitting (laughs) and i said it's quitting but it's not surrendering and and i actually said what is your goal and his goal was not to be successful in that particular business his goal was to spend time with his family and set up a safe financial situation for them and he kind of got his wires crossed on thinking that this business that he had started was the mission Mm. wasn't the mission. Yeah. The mission was taking care of his family and spending time with his family. And yeah. he was actually failing to do either. So sometimes you have to sometimes you have to make those adjustments. You have to quit. Just because you quit one plan doesn't mean you surrender. Yeah. See, In so- fact, I would get mad at young SEALs when they would come up with their plan, they'd use the plan to go hit a training target. The plan would start to fail. And they wouldn't adapt. They wouldn't change. They'd stick with their plan. I'm not a quitter. We're going to keep going. Oh, really? Okay, cool. We'll kill everyone that you have. You can do buddy carries the rest of the night out here in the desert. I got all night. (laughs) 
So it's essentially, when it comes down to it, it's almost like an issue with the language. Because like quitting, giving up, like these are things that we're kind of trained to, to think are yes. bad. These are yep. bad things to quit and give up. So all you have, I mean, and given what he's talking about, you know, like nowadays, I've heard people use the word pivot. Like the guy you're yeah, talking about yeah, with yeah. the business, yeah, right? Got to pivot. Yeah, I got to pivot. It's like, well, pivot, quit, give up. I mean, yeah. I'd rather use the word pivot. Because it sounds like, hey, I'm still on the on the mission, on the path. I'm just taking yeah, a different direction. I think, you know, you know, it would we'd have to come up with a legitimate what never quit, yeah. which is what we're actually taught yeah. in the SEAL teams. But then when you say hey, never quit, that means never surrender. That's what that, that's well, what. And they what mean. it really means is never lose sight of accomplishing and doing what it takes to accomplish your long term strategic goals. Yeah. That's what it really means. But that yeah. doesn't sound as cool as never quit. Yeah. But then, and then give up, same thing. Yeah, give, give up. up means like, uh, this is too much for me, or, or I'm not willing to work hard through it, or whatever. That's what it feels like yeah. it means. But in this book, it doesn't mean that. It I, means here's, here's a little, little dichotomy for me that kind of hurts. And I know I think it's pretty much ego talking. But I, when I hear pivot, <laughs> I always think, oh, things aren't going so well. Exactly are they? Right. giving up See, on that thing, aren't you? And you know what? That's, so exact, that's kind of a negative connotation, which well, is which is not good. I'm criticizing myself for even having those right. thoughts because you do have to pivot in business. You do have to yeah. pivot in combat. Right. You can't be like, oh, yeah. here's what we were trying to do and it wasn't working, so we're just going to do it harder. No, you actually yeah. have to say, hey, this isn't working and we're going to make some adjustments. We're going to pivot. Yeah, and I think that's what that word was sort of introduced <laughs> to that whole space to mean because yeah. of all these different. But then here's the thing, though. On the uh, on the flip side of that, yeah. some guys, they'll give it. up. Yeah. They'll straight up give up because yeah. it's too much work and be yeah. like, I'm going to take a new direction in yeah, I'm life. Gonna, I'm going to pivot towards uh, you know more of the uh, yeah, more personal stuff. More, you know, more, some more personal things. <laughs> yeah. Focus more on, you know. Meanwhile, they surrendered their whole mission because right. it was too much work for right. them. You know, we or like it, it didn't come as easy or quickly. Whatever. We're gonna pivot. We're gonna pivot hard <laughs> if we need to. Yes. Sure. Check. Next, ability to accept defeat in such ways is no fault of character. In fact, a man who can take it and still do his best without bitterness is highly regarded in the army and in civilian life. But there are other ways of meeting defeat or disappointment that are destructive and may result in psychological casualty. The familiar sour grapes reaction is what happens in a man who has set his heart so firmly on a particular achievement that he can't give it up and face the fact. So he belittles or runs down the very job he wants so much to have. He says pilots are all crazy or fools and the whole flying game is a jip. (laughs) We have to talk to Good deal, Dave Burke, about that one. Good deal, Dave. No, because, and that, that that definitely happens. You know, you get someone that's trying to achieve. You don't even care about a black belt. Yeah. It's yeah. not even that big of a deal. Yeah. Like, cool. Don't get one, because apparently you're not. Sour grapes. You know, sour grapes. You know where that expression comes from? I do from? not. Yeah, so I didn't either um, until I was well into adulthood. So it's like an old, what do you call them? Little fable. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't, what is it when it's like a story that yeah, didn't really happen, but it was like... So super short. So this fox mm-hmm. was hungry mm-hmm. and saw some grapes up on the vines, right? Mm-hmm. And so the fox was like, dang, they're pretty high. So it's all good. I'm going to jump up. I'm going to eat those grapes because I'm hungry. Jumps up, misses the grape. He can't jump high enough. So he's like, all right. He, he 
comes back and he's like, you know, I, I just got to jump higher. That's all. So he jumps high, even higher. Still can't, still can't get him. Tries again. Still can't get him. Again, still can't get him. Finally gives up. Doesn't pivot. Gives up. Mm-hmm. And while he's leaving, he says, scrapes were probably sour anyway. Huh? There it is. There you go. Don't like that. Continuing more likely to occur is a sort of symbolic running away through feigned illness or physical defect. Defect. A man faced with failure to pass an examination for a promotion or he is long for may suddenly announce that he is colorblind or night blind or has some other previously undiscovered defect that would prevent a success. Or he may become actually ill and be honestly unaware of the connection between sudden sickness and frustration. This is a feigned physical defect is a big one for people that don't make it through some kind of military training program. So what is that? That's like, we're like, well, what happened? Oh, I hurt my leg. Right. And maybe they did it or wait. So are they blaming something that actually is occurring or are they just sort of making it up? Physical effect. Hey, I couldn't do this because my leg was hurt. That's why I didn't make it through the program because I got this. I got that. Yeah. Okay. And then the other thing that they make is sometimes people actually get sick but it's because they're, you know, like the, the mind-body connection. Huh. It's crazy. Back to the book. Each man, no matter how strong mentally and physically, has his limits beyond which the strongest will cannot drive him. The wise man learns his own tolerances and cautiously retreats, if possible, to a more defended position when hazards and obstacles he is in danger of are too great. It's amazing that they so clearly understood this. This is 1942 or something like that. And they're saying, look, they're saying the exact same thing. That's a big revelation to say, pivot. They're saying the same thing. Rage, a two-edged weapon. A group of tanks stands in a field, silent, motionless, and dead. Suddenly, switches are thrown, motors start, and they become alive. Noise bursts from their exhausts, and they roar to attack. A gun is inert and dead until a high explosive powder is set off in its chambers. A bomb without nitroglycerin is a dud. All weapons are mere useless pieces of metal until the release of energy brings them to life. Man, too, as a weapon of war, must have energy released to galvanize him into acting, fighting soldier. And the high explosive that sets off a man's fighting power is emotion. There are certain things that a man can do in an automatic way without the fire of emotional energy. But these things would win no wars. Without fear and without rage, he could not even defend himself if the enemy were aiming at him and about to fire. Slap a man's face and he will become enraged. Drop a bomb beside him and he may become terrified. But although the two feelings may seem different to, may seem to the man very different, Inwardly, the changes that take place in his body are similar. His heart beats faster. His blood pressure rises. His blood is shifted from internal organs to the muscles. His digestion stops. Sugar in his blood increases. His hands tremble. His voice quivers. The body wastes in the bladder or bowels may be expelled. He becomes alert and ready for instant action. 
Whether all this extreme preparation for action by the body is a good thing for the soldier or whether it will eventually or whether it will actually endanger his life dis- depends on the circumstances. When in primitive hand to hand combat, when the last ounce of energy of which the body is capable must be summoned instantly for one tremendous spurt of running to get away from peril or for one outburst of physical strength to down the foe, rage or fear will pour into blood the adrenaline necessary to rouse that vital energy. If immediate vigorous action is impossible, however, and if life depends instead upon the cool-headed use of skill, self-control, and discipline, then violent emotion can put the soldier in mortal peril. So this one thing can kill you or save you. Yeah, there's an interesting differentiation there where it's like, hey, if if the task kind of requires like skill and stuff, right, you got to control that. Mm -hmm. You got to, you know, you can't be doing it. But if it's like, hey, if you sometimes because let's face it, man, in life and whatever, sometimes it just, bro, you just got to power through some stuff. Every once yeah, in a while, so no, and, no doubt about it. You know, so and I, actually, you're the one. You, you said how, put quite eloquently. Uh, so what is it? Sometimes, sometimes like, you have to use your logic, and sometimes you have yeah, to use emotion. Yeah, yeah. when it's your in, logic it's in the fails, equals freedom field manual. Yeah, it's gotta, this thing is in the, is in the field manual. <laughs> sometimes, good. if if your if your logic fails, like if you can't think of a good reason why should I do another set or why should I go compete in this thing. You have to let your emotions get a little get in the game. Yeah, and then, and then sometimes your emotions get shut down. Yeah, because you think this is just stupid. This yeah, doesn't even make sense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then you got to let your emotions go. What do you mean it doesn't make sense? Because you're being weak. Yep, you don't like that. No, and that's bad. Actually, the logic one, it, it, a lot of times is, is, well, it's more, more dynamic. I'd say because you can have full, com- well, I don't know about you, but I can have full conversations in my head. And the working out one was a big one where I'm like, think about how you'll feel after. That's yeah, yeah. going to be the benefit, you know? <laughs> but then at the same time, I'd be like, hey, wait, but you could easily rest right now. Yeah, you, know, you can get recovered. You know, so it's like. You're one of those guys that has a huge, huge surplus of standing by things that are like, look, you know, the most important part of working out is rest. <laughs> <The> rest <laughs> is you you don't true. You don't grow. You don't get stronger when you're working out. You actually get stronger when you're resting. Yep, when you recover. You, start, you got that true. little voice. So you got that that one little monkey on your shoulder that's whispering those things. Yeah, but now I got you who in like <laughs> the we, big monkey. Yeah, yeah, even bigger one because, and I got this from you essentially where it's like okay, I can. This is kind of the conversations going on in my head, um, typically. So yes, I can be like, yeah, the recovery. That's how you you know get the gains, whatever, that's on one side. Then the other side is like, wait, but you want to train a whole, um, there's way more to working out than just getting bigger and stronger. Mm -hmm. There's more to it. There's mental exercise, there's mental Mm -hmm. toughness exercise in there, there's doing, you know, discipline, all all these things. Oh, yeah. And and they're more, like, they're longer lasting, like, things to to develop. You know, like, when you develop them, they apply to more things. So, I can be, I can easily be like, Hey, I don't feel like it today. That's my body telling me I, I should rest today. Yeah. I really don't feel like it physically. And that is true. It's probably true. But yeah. what else is true is if I can train myself to, to power through these sorts of situations, even though they're true, that's going to serve me way better in life. So if the I develop that skill. Allow this. Yeah. 
So I'm like, dang. So now I got two months. I was explaining some of that stuff to my youngest daughter, my youngest daughter, about how competi- competition is good. Mm-hmm. And the reason competition is good is because life is a competition. Mm-hmm. It is a straight up competition. And if you're not good at competing, if you don't get comfortable with competing, that's going to be a problem when it comes time to compete, which you will have to do. You're not going to get through life without comp- competing for things. Yeah. For whatever, yeah. you're, it doesn't ha- it doesn't happen. You're gonna have to compete for a job. You're gonna have to compete for, you know, to to meet someone to be to be your wife or husband. You're, there's a competition going on for that. Yeah. You, they're just not like down for the cause out of the gate. No, yeah, you got to fight off other humans. Yeah, to get what you want. Yeah, whether I mean, it's a spouse, whether it's a job, whether it's a promotion. Whether it's a part in the school play, oh, there's yeah. other people that are going to be trying. I was telling my little daughter this. Yeah. You think they're just going to step aside when you show up? Oh, yeah. You want no. the lead role? Yep. You got to. Yeah, <laughs> no, man. it's a competition and it's you true. must destroy the competition. And yep. the way you do that is you compete. You compete in different things a lot. You push yourself and you figure out what it takes to step up. Yeah. Like wrestling a lot. Wrestling puts a lot of pressure on kids. And it is straight competition, mano e mano, or in the case of my daughter, what is that? Female womano versus womano. It is straight competition, you against another human being. One of you is going to win, one of you is going to lose 100% of the time. That's what's going to happen. And it's all on you. So that's really good for, for, for people. It's good for kids. Yeah. Well, jujitsu competition, same thing. And then you just get, you can just say any kind of competition. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like a, well, a dichotomy too, you know, in, in the spirit of accuracy, it's kind of like life, not to get too deep here, but life is, is half competition, half collaboration. So and it could be different. It could mm-hmm. be 60, 40 and whatever, it whatever year. hundred percent competition for me and a bunch of collaboration oh, yeah. for you. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> No, but here's the thing where, yeah, you get people who lean too, too far towards competition. They start to alienate people and they can't, you know, maintain relationships like the, all these problems. They're playing the short game. Short game. Yes. And the collaboration. If thing they're playing well. the long game, that's not a factor. Yeah. Because they're realizing, oh, I'm going to win in the long game. Well, so this short game is a sacrifice. Yeah. No problem. Oh, yeah. Because I want to, you know, I'm not going to do something that's going to create an antagonistic relationship with these people that I'm going to count on in the future. So guess what? We're going to take a little hit right now. We're going to make some, you know, we, you make compromises because you're focused on the long game because ultimately it is a competition. Yeah. Well, it is a competition. Sure. Um, not everything's a competition. It's a lot of it is a collaboration, but within, I mean, most times we collaborate to compete. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So it is, it's like a little balance, like a little dance you're doing with collaboration competition. That's why I think, I think anyway, I don't know, but from what I can view or uh-huh. see, observe that, yeah, if you lean too much towards competition, yes. you, you jam yourself up. And if you lean Completely too true. much towards collaboration, there is a dichotomy. you jam yourself up too. It's like you can't, you can't succeed. It's like you can't get out of like your little cloud. Yeah, it should know? be balanced. And if you are competing on things, because there's people that compete on things that don't matter. Yeah, that don't matter. and then while, and Or they compete when they should be collaborating. Yeah, that's true too. Or they're afraid to compete. So they don't compete at all. Yeah. So there's all kinds of problems. But yes, I 
what am I, I'm speaking a little bit simplified for my daughter because what my daughter, what I want my kids to realize is that there is competition. Yeah. And that they're part of it, whether they want to be or not. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Oh, yeah. And so when I talk to my daughter about something and she gives me a kind of a shoulder shrug about something, yeah. when it's not a shoulder shrug situation, yeah. then you aren't understanding that things are a competition mm-hmm. and life is a competition. And, and you know what? It is hard to say. It's, 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 it's very extreme to say everything in life or life in general or life as a whole is a competition. That's a real extreme statement and I can see, I totally agree with your point and you are correct that that can result in then a bad a bad attitude and a really a, not even just a bad attitude, a bad life. I mean, you can end up, like you said, you can alienate everyone and you can end up alone and you're competing and you're like, I got beat that person, I beat that yeah. person and now you're just, you've lost that's the thing is you, you you've lost a whole section of of your competition which is developing relationships with other human beings that you can then count upon in your times of need or that you can provide for it's like all you've ruined everything yeah. so but what I'm saying is even that right there if you think about it in terms of what I just said you lost mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so ultimately yeah. to win the competition, you 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 have to be aware of it. You yeah. have to compete. Yeah. Competing. This is this is probably the crux of what we're trying to say. Competing doesn't always mean competing. Smashing the other person. Yeah. Competing doesn't always mean that. Sometimes competing means actually letting the other person win. Yeah. Yeah. Competing sometimes means let it get compromising. Because I'm gonna win the long game. Yeah. I'm playing the long game over here. Yeah. And you're playing around with the short game. You, yeah, you beat me. Luck. Hey, good job. I'm yeah, gonna yeah. applaud you. I'm gonna give you a golf clap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It's true. Because at the end, you know, you can collaborate all you want, but if you have like how you put it, the long game, which is a really, really effective way to look at it, by the way, with everything. But if you can be collaborating and be, the, you know, the best team player in the whole wide world. But your goal, your goal is for your team. You're the team player. It's for your team to win mm-hmm. whatever you're doing. And win, I mean, it's here's the thing where, where I think people get emotionally jammed up when they hear, like, everything's a competition and that shouldn't be like that or whatever. To win in life, win, meaning they think that, like, I win, you lose yeah, kind of thing. that's part of it, yep. You know, but really when it comes out, even, like, just genetically, right? You know how you say, you know, finding a mate or reproducing whatever it's like you're it's like survival of the fittest right darwinism kind of thing Mm -hmm. like organisms compete Mm -hmm. for mate compete for this so it's kind of like that's how it is Mm -hmm. you know it's not like i'm a person you're a person i'm gonna win and defeat you and you you're the loser it's not that that thing it's like basically you want to be successful and for for most situations for you to be successful you have to kind of you have to beat someone else of them, them being yes. successful. And in order to be successful, you also have to play the game. You also have to play the game by the rules. Yeah. Because otherwise you end up ostracized or in jail, right? Because right. you could say, I'm going to win. Right. I'm going to make the most money. So what do I mean? I'm going to steal it from people. I'm yeah. going to do immoral things yeah. in order to get there. That that would be a, everything's a competition attitude, but it's the wrong attitude. Because yeah. you're not going to win in the end. Oh, you're yeah. going to lose. You're going to be in jail. So you lost, but 
if you realize that it is a competition and you have to play the rules and you have to win the game and winning the game means that you are successful in a place where you can help other people and you've got what you need and that's what we're looking for yeah yeah definite dichotomy with that one speaking of dichotomies going back to the book it is possible it is as possible to be literally blinded by rage as it is to be paralyzed by fear a prize fighter knows that he can win against a stronger and more skilled opponent if he can rouse his opponent to violent anger in which he strikes wildly and fails to use his science. We see that all the time. Mm. You've got to maintain your composure in a fight on the mats, even on the mats of justice Bro, for the jujitsu. Oh, yeah, big time. You know what You know what movie was like the, the, the epitome of that <laughs> was A Few Good Men. Remember at the uh, end oh, 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 when he was oh, like, yeah. Yeah. When he made him admit to it, yeah, he that's exactly what he totally. did, man. Totally took him out of the game, got him all riled up, made mm. him. It's bad, man. That was yeah. good. You can't handle the truth. That's right. That was a good speech, though. By the way, he but he let the rage and the emotion cause a problem for him. Jammed him up. He could have just. He didn't have to do anything. No. Nope. He he could. He just kept his mouth shut. Be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Nope. Didn't do it. Tom and, Cruise. And Tom Cruise. He played the game really well. Oh, yeah. Knew to attack his emotions. Yep. Isn't it funny that if you understand psychology and human nature, you can actually play it on someone and bring their own demise based on something that, that they're they going to do, do for yeah. themselves? Yeah. It's crazy. That's why it's important to understand human nature. Back to the book. The main purpose behind all the long routine of military training and the preconditioning of troops to simulate battle conditions to drill into soldiers' fighting habits so deeply ingrained, so intimately second nature that they will persist persist in the face of the most overwhelming provocations to rage or panic. Long practice in shooting coolly at a target without undue excitement, without bloodlust, makes it possible for the soldier to shoot calmly as at his target when his very life and the safety of his pals are at stake. His hand must not tremble then. His keen eye and steady nerve must not waver. Fortunately, men in civilized society have been trained since early childhood to control and discipline their natural impulses. For the normal adult, it is entirely possible for intelligence to remain in command of his behavior and for even recently acquired habits to be retained in opposition to the instinctive impulses to run or drop his rifle and flail out with his fists. There are many degrees of anger, however, and although the violently enraged individual may be at the mercy of the enemy, a milder form of resentment, of injustice, and calm determination to avenge cruelty can serve to fill men with a fighting spirit that knows no defeat. The difference between this cool anger and rage is like the difference between tempered steel and molten iron. Oh, that's a good one. Like the difference between a raging torrent that destroys blindly and the harnessed power of a Niagara that can be directed intelligently to wipe out the enemy. Such deep and controlled anger is not to be roused artificially by any group before any group of men it is the automatic result of an unpardonable offense it rises like an unquenchable fire when a man's house is attacked when his wife or children are abused when his own native land is invaded such anger can 
be used not only for actual killing of the enemy, but also to provide the energy needed for work behind the lines. A soldier who is determined to defeat the enemy will do anything that he feels contributes to wiping out the foe, whether it is changing the tires on a truck or unloading shells from a packing case or policing barracks in his training camp. He will fight at his job. He will do that job well and will use his own initiative to volunteer for extra duty to think up ways of doing his job more quickly and more efficiently. Anger is infectious and can spread from one person to another through personal contact. Just to see the flushed face and tense expression of a wrathy person may be enough to stir anger in others. The sound of anger in a raised voice or the sight of angry behavior is even more catching. Anger spreads most readily when the beholder is sympathetic. When he's able to put himself in the angry man's shoes when the person who is injured is one of us. For this reason, the roused anger of a people is much greater and more moving than the sum of the individual angers within the group. They reinforce one another. Anger shared, controlled, and directed to the single purpose of destroying the enemy is a powerful force for survival and for victory. Anger is a gift. <laughs> is that yeah. a rage against the machine? It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Respect. Yeah. Bringing out quotes. It goes on. Hatred of the enemy makes sense. The army is organized throughout for one single purpose. Fighting. Soldiers must be fighting men with a fighting spirit. But some acts of aggression by soldiers are useless to the war effort effort, and actually dangerous to the army. When competition, here we go, when competition between companies or regiments turns into bitter rivalry, when soldiers in town for a Saturday night pick quarrels with each other or with the townspeople, when race prejudices are permitted to develop within a camp, or when officers stoop to professional jealousy, the harmful results can be as bad as those dealt out by the enemy. This is when Leif and I always say the enemy is outside the wire. Yeah. This, all those things are fighting inside the wire, yeah. fighting against ourselves. Mm-hmm. Such conditions make rifts in the solidarity essential to the fighting morale. They cause a deterioration of discipline, produce a state of anxiety and insecurity among the troops, and worst of all, they actually drain off in ineffective petty squabbles the fighting energy, every ounce of which is needed to bring victory. The thoughtful leader, knowing that no group or nation can long survive if it is torn by internal strife or dissension with its allies, is seriously disturbed by any tendency toward personal or factional friction within his command. He well knows that victory can only come if the whole group puts all its efforts into a unified cooperative battle against a common enemy. You always end up with these little factions, right? And you have to try and prevent that. Mm. You ha- you, can, you gotta you gotta watch out for those. Yeah. They sneak up on you. It happens any it happens in any organization though. I mean, yeah. People start to relate to each other, and then they pick a little common enemy, even with inside the wire. Yeah. And, you know, it's like us against them. Yeah, that's true, huh? Because in, in picking a common enemy, even on a social level, whatever that that like. Uh, promotes cohesion within a group like uh, apparently from what i read 
is like gossip, right? There's a purpose for gossip. Like if people gossip, it makes them like bond. It's weird. Yeah, yeah, no. And actually there's this book talks about rumors. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. What are the fruitful ripe terrain for rumors to grow, for gossip to grow. Yeah, but the act of doing it and with each that's other. that's part like, of the reason. No part, of, part of the reason huh. is if you and I need something to connect on, well, we'll just make fun of this guy or we'll talk yeah, smack yeah, about yeah, this guy. Yeah, yeah. And we kind of bond, right? Right. If you hate this guy and I hate this guy, bro, yeah, we're, we're bros, man. Team. We're in the game. We're in the game. So you, so, uh, and you know, the, this, and this says, and you say, that you should you should try to prevent those you know little um like what do you clicks or whatever yeah. right to kind, yeah. kind of is there do you think there's benefit to them actually there is me? benefit maybe to just them. on a low there level is, like no, a no, no, even on a low level there are benefits but it has to be balanced because yeah. guess what I'm the task unit commander of task unit bruiser yeah. I have Charlie and Delta platoon I want Charlie and Delta platoon to be competitive against each other so that they're pushing to try and become try and make each other or try try and become their best so they can talk smack to the other guys. We beat you in this thing. We beat you in that thing. Okay, cool. That's positive. I want that to happen. What I don't want is Delta Platoon figures out a good standard operating procedure and doesn't share it with Charlie Platoon because we want to keep outperforming them on this drill or vice versa. That's what we don't want to have happen. So you've got to balance these dichotomies, yes, and you want to have these little competitive groups. And inside, guess what? Inside of Charlie Platoon, there's Squad 1 and Squad 2. They should compete with each other. And inside Squad 1 and Squad 2, inside Squad 1, you've got Fire Team 1 and Fire Team 2. They're competing against each other. And then inside that Fire Team, you've got two swim pairs. And they're competing with each other. So you want to establish that healthy competition, but what you want to make sure is that it doesn't cross the boundary into sabotage. Right. Yeah, so it's like it has to remain at all times. Has to The little mini competitions or competitive situations yes. have to remain within the boundary of the team goal. Like it can never cross over that, right? Like it, it has to be... It all has to support the team goal, right? Whatever, yes. they, whatever that means. Yes, like we can't ever you... be taking away from the fact that we have a unified mission mm. to execute and achieve. We can never let anything undermine that goal. Yeah, ever. Yeah, and that right there, it, we we throw around this term, putting the mission first, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you got to put the mission first, like. We throw that around. Mm -hmm. But if you think that through to its ultimate end, it is the most powerful force that you can have from a leadership perspective from from the way that you operate and the decisions that you make. Because you you look at some decision that needs to get made. Mm -hmm. And if if you truly ask yourself the question, okay, how will this, will this move us towards our objective in a positive way? Yeah. If it will, okay, we're moving in the right direction. Sounds like a good idea. If it's not doing that, you're, it's the wrong decision to make. And so it comes time to fire someone. You're firing this person because they talk back to you and they were they got a bad attitude. Okay, so then you ask yourself, okay, what does this do to our mission, our ability to execute our mission? Right. Well, the guy's a turd and he doesn't know his job well and he's been slacking off. Mm-hmm. Okay and no one likes him, guess what? He's getting fired. Yeah. But okay, wait a second. I don't like him. 
I don't like him because he rubs me the wrong way. I don't like him because he's got a big ego, which means he's brushing up against my big ego, which is making me hold it against him. And by the way, he's come up with a couple ideas that were better than mine, and I resent him for that. that And by the way, he asked some questions during my last brief that were really hard for me to answer. He kind of put me (laughs) on the spot, right? So all these things. And so I rack those things up, and I start, and now I put together my little clique. I start saying, hey, you know, he does this, and he did this on this op, and all of a sudden, I got a reason. Yeah. And now I need to ask myself, okay, am I furthering the mission? If I get rid of him, who's going to replace him? He has experience. Who's going to replace that experience? He's another body. Who's going to replace that other body? And so if you make your decisions based on what's good for the team, by the way, what's good for the team is what's good for the mission. You have a team to accomplish the mission. If your team is dysfunctional, you're not going to accomplish the mission. If your team is destroyed or part of your team is lost, you can't accomplish the mission. So if you really truly look, is is what I'm doing accomplishing? What about your family, right? Your family mission. Mm-hmm. is to provide for your family and take care of your family. Mm-hmm. When you start looking at things from that standpoint, hey, I really want to get this new car. Yeah. Right? I really like this new car. Sure. Okay, we know that that's an emotional decision. Yeah. Buying cars for most people is an emotional decision, myself included. Yes. Americans, it's not even just Americans, people yeah. love cars. I don't know if it's because the advertising thing, but cars represent freedom. You have the ability to travel hundreds and thousands of miles on your own accord. Yeah. And maybe you just need to travel to the grocery market. <laughs> but still, the yeah. car gives you freedom. Yeah. And then the car, in a deeper level, is a reflection of you. Yeah, your right? identity. For it's, sure. It's your, yeah, this is, it, it, it's literally something that you get inside of. And when people look at it, they're looking at the metal and steel version of you in your own mind. Yes. So it can be hard to drive a 1997 Dodge Grand Caravan with a a duct tape on the the window. Sure. It can be hard. The fires. The fires in San Diego in 2003, were you here for those? Yes. They poured ash everywhere. So that ruined a lot of paint if the cars were sitting outside. So my 1997 Dodge Grand Caravan had all peeled paint. It looked like just just horrible. Sure. Peeled paint. It yeah. was like a dark red, but then there was these flakes of clear stuff all over it falling off. Dang. Sorry. So if you looked at that car, and I saw that car as a reflection of me, mm-hmm. it was Pretty pretty low reflection, you know? Yeah. Nothing against my, my brothers out there that are driving the, the minivans. Props. You got the family. You, you make that your priority. Because mm-hmm. what I could have done back in the day was say, you know what? I really want to get whatever. Yeah. The, the Ford F-350 Super Duty Dually Extended King Cab. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oak yeah. trim. Sure. That's me. Yeah. I want to look like that on the outside. Yeah. So then what is my decision-making process? Do I need that vehicle? I live in San Diego, by the way. Mm-hmm. I live in San Diego. What do I do with my vehicle? I drive to work. I drive home. I take my kids to the jiu-jitsu tournaments. That's mm-hmm. what I do with my vehicle. Mm-hmm. Do I need an F-350 Super Duty Dually extended cab diesel 7.3 power stroke engine? Do I need that? <laughs> I don't know. Kind of. No, I don't. So you know. what is the mission? What is the mission? First of all, we know that when I buy a car, it's going down in value. 
If I buy a piece of property, I buy a house, I buy a home, that's gonna go up in value over time. Sure, it might go up and down a little bit, but over time, it's gonna go up in value. Yeah. Over time, my, I, my kids can have that in 30 years. That, yeah. that They don't want that Ford in 30 years. That thing's barely even running in 30 years. Yeah. So. What is my mission? My mission is to provide for the family, protect the family, take care of the family, set them up for success in the future. What do I need to drive? I need to drive a Dodge Caravan. Yeah. That's what I need to drive. I understand. So yeah, if yeah. you frame things correctly about what your broad mission is, you're gonna do better off, you're gonna make better decisions as a leader. Yeah. That's the way it's gonna be. Yeah. <sighs> oh. And by the way, speaking of leaders, here we go back to the book, the most serious of all causes for an epidemic of dissension is the bad leader. When, as sometimes happens in any organization like an army, men have placed over them a man they do not trust, one who loves to show his authority and throw his rank around or an unreasonable martinet, the whole outfit will be filled with resentment. Since it is impossible to show this antagonism to the officer who is at fault, the troops go around with chips on their shoulders, daring each other to knock them off. The only way to wipe out such an infection of dissension is to track down and remove the cause. If men believe they have a grievance, even if the complaint is unjustified, they should be permitted to tell their troubles to someone in authority. If an officer gives them a patient hearing, investigates conditions with a fair and open mind and explains his findings to the men, they will usually be satisfied, even in cases where it is impossible to do much to correct the objectionable state of affairs. This is such good advice. Guess what, when you're in a leadership position, you're gonna have people that are gonna complain about things, they're gonna see problems. And what you should do in those situations is listen. Listen to what the team has to say. Listen to what that individual has to say. Yeah. Get feedback. That's what you should do. Back to the book. Just telling their troubles to a willing listener serves to get the air cleared. And in cases where men make constructive suggestions for correcting conditions, they will take in the organization a pride that they never had before. So uh, your guy tells you to do something or asks you to do something or gives you a suggestion, use it and give him credit. <laughs> These are reasons why for many years in our army, any officer or soldier has been free to tell a grievance to the inspector general sent periodically to each place where there are troops. Inspector general's like a internal affairs type situation. Mm. But you shouldn't need to resort to that. Mm. You know, if you're a good commander and a good leader, when the internal affairs people show up, they get told, hey, everything's awesome. They have no grievances to, to put out there because they already told you. Mm. And then you gave them an answer. Mm. And then people say, well, what if I can't answer the grievances? Well, then will you figure out what the answer is? If, you, if, if my subordinate comes to me and says, hey, this is, we're not getting the right food out here. Well, I don't just say, well, sorry. No, I say, okay, let me see what I can do about it. Hey, mm. this is what's going on, by the way. There's a lack of flights heading in this direction. The supply trains are getting blown up by IEDs. We have an alternate plan for food. We're going to try and make it happen in a couple months. But right now, we kind of got what we got. Mm. And now, what do you say? You, 
screw you. No, you go, okay, I understand. Yeah. We're at war for crying out loud. Mm. I understand I'm not going to get steak dinner every night. It's not happening. No. Even though we might want it, we're not going to get it. Sure. So hear out those grievances. Some people get concerned that if you start taking grievances from people, then it turns into a, a bitch session. Yeah. Right? You heard this word, this, this term before, mm. the bitch session. I'm actually, in general, not scared of bitch sessions. Hmm. I'm not scared of them because if you ask me a good question or you ask me a question, I should have an answer for it. I'm the leader. Yeah. If, if you're in my platoon and you have a question for me, I should be able to answer it. Yeah. If you have a bitch, I should be able to give you a reason why that is occurring and yeah. why we either can move forward with some kind of a corrective measure or why we cannot because of the following limitations that we're under. Yeah. So I'm not really scared of bitch sessions unfolding. Have I seen them become unproductive? Absolutely. I especially see them become unproductive when, when we start to like lose the conversation and if the leader, if you ask me a question and I say, because, yeah, you know, if you say, hey, why can't we get better food? And I say, because, then you yeah. say, because of what? And I say, because I said so. Now we're going to have a problem. Yeah. Now this bitch session just became unproductive. <laughs> if you say, hey, Jocko, you know, we've been here for two months. Why can't we get some better food? I'm like, you know what? Right now, I don't even know because. I, I agree with you, the food is pretty bad, and I like food. And so let me take a note here. I'm gonna write down, I'm gonna send it up the chain of command. We can figure out A, what's going on, why we don't get, have good food, and B, if there's a way we can possibly start making this happen. I hear you. Mm-hmm. Bitch is now subdued, right? Mm-hmm. The complaint has been subdued. Yeah. Because I gave you a legitimate answer. I didn't even give you a solution by any stretch. Mm -hmm. I just gave you an answer. I just took your information and heard what you had to say, which is legitimate. I've seen people where they they send up a complaint and they they get subdued, but then the the leader doesn't follow up on the complaint. Like I don't follow up and actually go up the chain of command and say, why aren't we getting better food? That's going to be a problem next session. It's, hey, you said you were going to do something. What's the answer? And I say, well, uh, I, uh, uh, but, but, but. Mm. Now you're mad. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. And that's really it. That's really the, the, what tells the tale. Because, like, okay, so a bitch session, right? That'll, mm-hmm. the, I mean, uh, along with complaints come what, what I think is more important than, like, the complaint or the issue that's complained about. More important is the motivation to complain. So let's say uh, the food is, is junk, right? If I think, if I'm mad about that, if that bothers me, whether it be because I think the food should literally be better, it should be better right now. (laughs) I don't know why it's bad right now, but I think it should be, and that makes, that bothers me at the very least. That produces a motivation to complain. But if the food can be just as bad, but if I have an explanation, I have no motivation to complain because I'm not mad at that, it's understandable. So a bitch session will, will develop when those feeling those motivations to complain are maintained or escalated so like if you're like saying why uh because because i said so i'm mm-hmm. still mad totally bro i'm and i'm even a little bit more mad because the way you said that to yeah. me 
So that's when those bitch, bitch sessions will come. Or if you get a yes. couple of people making the same complaint and then another couple yep. of people like you know, kind of refuting it or something like that, where anywhere where there's emotions kind of. And one, one key factor that you brought up is the, is the building up, right? Yeah. If you're constantly communicating with your people, then the bitch sessions don't build up. It's when you decide, which when you don't, when you lock yourself in your own vacuum and you don't listen to what anyone has to say, and then once every six months you go, "Hey guys, we're gonna have a uh, a Q and A. If you guys have any questions for me, you guys can come and uh, you guys can ask me your questions." Well, these guys have been brewing up questions oh, for the yeah. last six months. They Motivated. got some questions. Oh, yeah. They got some questions, <laughs> boy, and they're gonna hit you with them hard. Oh, yeah. So you that if you want to prevent the bitch session from getting out of control guess what communicate with your people more often it'll take that question about why is the food so bad by the time it's six months deep and that guy's been eating crappy food for six months there's almost no solution that you can provide that's going to be good for him and by the way you wasted six months of trying to find a solution so that's just wrong so you're, you're already starting off with a with in a really negative situation so communicate with your people a lot. Don't be afraid. If some people say, "What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to?" Cool. You say, "Hey, let me write this down. And let me run this up the chain of command and find out what's going on with that because I don't know the answer." What if they? What if they ask me a question that I don't like the answer to? Yeah. Right. I don't like this. I don't like what I've been told. Wait, you as the leader. So you mean? I'm as the leader. Okay. And someone says, you know, I get told, "Hey, you're not getting food because we prioritized one of the other platoons." Okay. And they're getting all the steak, mm. which, by the way, would never happen. <laughs> but if they did that, and then I, and then someone says, "Hey, why are we getting this bad food?" And I go, "Well, it's because they gave it to the other platoon." You know, I, I, I wouldn't say I would, I would answer the question truthfully, which is like, "Listen, this is what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. For some reason, they gave the other platoon all the steak. Believe me." We have no greater champion for stake in this platoon than me. Yeah. I am personally flying to see the boss, and I'm going to figure out what's going on. We will get stake. You know what I mean? As opposed to just being mad or, or not wanting to give yeah. the answer or trying to hide it. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why we're not getting stake. You know yeah. why you're not getting stake. Tell everyone. Yeah. Don't. The more open you are. And of course, there's a dichotomy to this too because we can go too far in telling the truth. We can tell people the truth about things that they don't need to know about, right? Yeah. So you do have to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be careful. You have to be judicious in telling the truth. You have to make sure that it makes sense in accomplishing the long-term mission. If I tell everyone that we're not getting food because we got cut off and we're out here on our own and we're we have about <laughs> three days worth of food and water. And by the way, we're not going to live and we're all going to die. Yeah, so we should be happy with this that's, kind of junk that's, food. That's, that's not going to help my mission. Yeah. Now, I could I could turn that into something that says, listen, well, here's what's going on right now. We're cut off. And here's the mission that we're going to undertake to make this happen. That's probably not a great example. But yeah. I think we all understand that there's times if, if you screw up a video, if you put a video together for me and it's got the worst Christmas music to the video. Another terrible example, yeah, by the way. I don't just drop the hammer on you and say you suck at editing, even though I kind of think that at the moment. Yes, Instead, sir. I say, hey, I like what you put together. You know, maybe can you explain why you did this music selection? Because for me, it's a little bit different than what I would expect. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. Check. Going back to the book. Incidentally, but most important. I keep, I keep adding emphasis to things that are literally not in this book. So what that actually says is incidentally, but importantly, 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't say most important. I added that. Because <laughs> you felt uh, it. There's a second time I've done that. I've, mm-hmm. I've taken something to the next level, even though just on my hey, own accord. Hey, you're feeling just, it, just man. Feeling you're, crazy. you're feeling it. You're so what it says is, incidentally, in parentheses, but importantly, this method of dealing with dissatisfaction cheats the fifth columnist and saboteur who may lurk in the camp. It is much safer for the army that men should pour their gripes into the ears of an officer than that they should spill them in a beer joint in town or in any other place where outsiders can listen. Another method of handling dissension and overt aggression is by punishment. This is the chosen method of dictatorships and autocratic organizations generally. The method is commonly used even in America, and most children have to learn that when they feel aggressive, punishment is not that far away. So, another thing you can do when somebody asks, you know, a question. Hey, Jocko, can you tell us why we're not getting any steak? I'll tell you why. We're not getting steak because you haven't worked hard enough. Guess what you're doing tonight? KP duty. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever. You know, like when I punish you for asking a question, that's like what autocrats do. Dictators do that. Back to the book. Sometimes the soldiers' troubles cannot be attributed to any one person. They are due to the conditions of war or of army life. An ambitious and energetic man may find himself so wound up in red tape that he cannot do a good job. An organization may be all set to go forward to an objective but is hindered by failure of supplies, by shortages, by weather. No one is to blame. Which I kind of disagree with that statement because I always... If you're in charge of that, if you're in charge of that, then guess what? You should have figured out how to get the supplies there in time. You should have figured out a contingency plan for the weather. But what what they're talking about is sometimes things go wrong and continuing on, this natural need for someone to blame and punish when things go wrong, responsible for much race and religious prejudice, is also the cause for most quarrels that grow up between allies and between one branch of the service and another. So when you have these inner service rivalries, it's because there's no one else to blame. When you have organizations where the the production guys, the, the sales guys are selling stuff and the builders of the stuff, the engineers that design the stuff aren't getting it to them in time. When they're getting it to them in time, that's fine, but just the market is down and they start hating on each other when they should be focusing on how to adjust to the market adaptations that need to be make, made or the market adjustments that need to be made. Instead, they're going at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're, they're looking for someone to blame. Yeah. Don't look for someone to blame. Figure out what the problem is and solve it. Back to the book. An occasional individual in any large group appears to contradict all the rules about how aggression was built up. He will turn nasty when he's, this is a really interesting psychological profile. So I'm going to read this again. An occasional individual in any large group appears to contradict all the rules about how aggression was built up. He will turn nasty when he is treated with kindness and becomes very docile under punishment or frustration. He is excessively polite and cooperative as long as he is kept in a subordinate position, but when he is put in command of other men, he becomes tyrannical and overbearing. Such peculiar behavior is often the result of too severe punishment or of self-assertion or aggressiveness in childhood. 
This man is carrying around his own grouches and resentments bottled up inside him. He is deeply anxious to punish and hurt other people, but as long as he is faced with the threat of punishment himself, he retains his childhood fear of showing his feelings. As soon as other people treat him decently and no longer appear like a threat to him, then his meanness lashes out. People who have this curious reversal of normal reaction to other people's kindness or aggressiveness often like to boast that they are tough or hard and that they respect a man who will stand up to them. This boast is an explanation that fools many people, even including the explainer himself. Actually, the respect they claim to feel is nothing but an unconscious fear, a secret fear that the rebellious subordinate will punish them. Such men make poor leaders. They make their subordinates angry and uncooperative. They work best when alone. And this continues on. The good leader is not afraid of criticism from his subordinates. Amen, I guess, is what I would say to that. A good leader is not afraid of criticism from his subordinates. He will encourage it as a constructive and cooperative way of eliminating causes for resentment and dissension. And he will use it himself in dealing with his subordinates. But the criticism should be constructive and directed at some true cause of the difficulty, not some imagined evil or some harmless and defenseless person of the group. It should not be a means of passing the buck. Here are some rules for critics to keep in mind. So when you want to start throwing darts at the old man. (laughs) One, stick to things that can be corrected. Don't criticize dead issues or unalterable situations. You ever notice some people just get stuck? They get stuck on something and they'll just never let it go. Mm. Hey, that happened three months ago. Mm. I get it was a bad decision. We, w- I, If I could go back in time, I'd do it a different way. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. That's the call that got made. Here's the adjustments we've made f- from what we learned and here's where we're going forward. Mm. Are you good with that? Yeah, but I'm just saying it was. I- <laughs> <laughs> Two, be specific. Keep to concrete issues. Say what. Three, limit the issue. Don't blame the brass hats or the men in general. Say who. That's a good one. A lot of times we just like to blame them, right? They did it. Yeah. Suggest practical solutions to problems. Don't arouse emotion without suggesting what to do about it. Say how. Five, stick to facts. Don't swallow rumors, especially Axis-inspired rumors. Six, criticize leaders or men for their acts and policies, not for their personalities. Seven, put blame where it belongs. Don't find scapegoats. I was going to ask why is I wonder why it's so like appealing or for lack of a better term, to blame other people. Because, I, I mean, I guess when you think about it, it feels like if I don't have to blame myself, that's a safety thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll start there. And then, sure, someone will blame other things that are not people like, I don't know, the weather or the, you know, whatever. But it's like, it's almost like it seems more satisfying to blame other people. Beca- I don't know, maybe because they... Um, well, it feels satisfying because it takes the blame off of you. Yeah, but it, even is, even more than like blaming the weather, right? Weather is like it's almost like 
it's 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 more satisfying because if I can blame someone else, because someone else has the capability of actively trying to get in the way of my success, so mm. it's almost like this is what it feels like. I, I don't I think know. Is, I'm just wondering. Yeah, because I don't feel good about blaming anything or anybody or anyone. Yeah, so it could because yeah, because you're really in touch with like, you know, that part of things but i'm just saying just by nature because it has to be a natural thing right it yeah. has to be like a natural reaction to something i would think you know and different people have it worse yeah, than others i would say that that's a that's a reaction that's not too natural and it's a reaction that you have to nourish and raise correctly in yourself because when you when a little kid spells spills the milk when you walk into the kitchen yeah. and your daughter's sitting there and the milk is spilled over she says you say what happened? And she says the milk spilled. Yeah, she's blaming the milk, an inanimate object, right? Already, and she's four years old, five years old, right? Yeah. I'm the same way. Everyone starts off that way. It's yeah. it's a blow to our ego to to take the blame for things. We don't yeah. like to do it. Yeah. So it's not like. It's something you have to mature into. It's something you have to figure out over time, and yeah. the more you figure it out the better off you're going to be. Yeah. And I was talking with Dave Burke about this. Good deal, Dave. Yeah. And he was like really fired up one day. And the the fire was coming. He I forget even what you know how we got on this topic. Actually, I, I do think we were talking about a client that we have at Echelon Front. And he was trying to explain to them that everything like trying to explain to the boss, the CEO, everything, everything is your fault. Everything. And the guy's like, no, no, I get it. But. Yeah. No, 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 no. Everything. No, no, no. I, well, I get it. No, no. It's, I'm, I'm all about extreme ownership. I get it, man. I, that's a great book. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely taking ownership of what's going on here. But. Mm. And there's always a but. Mm. But the market. But the the guys that I hired, mm. but the person that that I partnered with, but the person I bought the company from, but the it it goes on and on. But mm. the real estate that we leased, it, it just goes on and on. Yeah. And guess what? If none of those are your problem, none of those are your fault. Guess what? You're never going to fix any of them. Mm-hmm. So the idea that that this stuff is a hundred percent your fault, a hundred percent your fault that's going on in your team, that's that. It's hard to get that through your brain, anyone's brain. Yeah, yeah it's weird. You, like you ever, you know, when you're a kid or something, or whether you witness someone else do this or you do it where it's like, let's say you lost something, right? And sometimes the first reaction, who took my, oh, whatever. What do you mean who that's took a seal, it? That's a seal curse. So the seal curse, if you lose something, yeah. as soon as you say, hey, who took my, yeah. or hey, somebody stole my, as soon as you those words come out of your mouth, you're gonna it's gonna appear in front of you. You can actually do it like to to find something that you've lost, you just blame someone, <laughs> like and like you'll a, find it immediately. Yeah, that's probably my earliest memory in the SEAL teams of mm-hmm. hey, don't blame people. Is that right there? Oh uh, yeah. Because if you you can't find your Sekimar life jacket or whatever, yeah. Somebody took my Sekimar. Oh, there it is. There's yeah. the Willink stencil, the JKO stencil is on, on that yeah. one right over there. It was yeah. it was underneath another one. Yeah. But yes, that's something that we all do. But we, it's like a natural thing to think because okay, so I have these these. Slippers at home. Do you mean flip flops? No, 
That's the thing. They're they're Nike because in Hawaii we call flip flops slippers. Slippers, yes, exactly. But these are slippers. Slippers, okay. the kind of like yeah. you can yeah, just yeah. fly in and out of like <laughs> when you're walking and whatever. And uh, so flip flops, like if let's say you're wearing flip flops or thongs, yes. slippers, right? That's true, what flip true. flops are. Um, so they're not that because if you're wearing socks, which I have been recently, because it's kind of chilly, but weak. So I'll wear socks. So you can't just slide in and out of flip-flops with socks on. Not uh-huh. that good. You know, if I'm going to take out the trash or something like this. So anyway, I have these slippers. They're real comfortable, too. They're like just regular Nike, like, slippers, whatever. So when I can't find them, for a moment, you know, they, there's literally like six or seven places that are far away from each other, by the way, in my house. That, that Six, seven places that they could The struggle be. is real. Yes. <laughs> Echo Charles. <laughs> my slippers are located far distances yeah. inside my own house, yeah. but they're really far apart. Okay. So, so the point is, I look in what place number one, they're not there. Place number two, they're not there. I automatically go... My wife took wearing my slippers or someone grabbed my slippers. You know, that's like the Mm. thing, even more so than the, you know, the four or five other places that I could easily, you know, so that's why I think it's a natural thing. It is a natural thing. Yes, you are correct. Blame somebody. I've been saying that for the whole time you and I have been doing this podcast. It's a natural thing to blame someone else. Yeah. That's why this idea of extreme ownership, of actually taking ownership of the problems that you have is very important. Yeah. And it's hard to enact. It's not, it's not comfortable. Yeah, There's yeah, no one, and even when people read the book and they listen to every podcast and they talk about it with their troops, even then, it's very easy to slide into an excuse and you yeah. blame someone or something else. And the problem with those excuses are they don't ever solve themselves. Yeah. They don't fix themselves. You can control you. So take control over everything. So- take ownership of everything. So that you can make them the way that they should be. Mm. What's the dichotomy in this? That's why we wrote dichotomy leadership. Because some people took that and said, "Okay, well, I'm just going to do everything myself. Yeah, I'm yeah. just oh, Charles, I own everything. <laughs> so now I'm going to, you know what? Echo, send me a script for the video you're making right now. I want to review yeah, it. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Send me a. Yeah. What's it called when you like draw the pictures? Send me a uh, storyboard. Send me a storyboard for yeah. your next video." <laughs> Ownership. No, that's not yeah. what I'm talking about. There's no a balance. Yeah. So, so this you have question, to keep it. You have to keep it balanced. So Dichotomy this question you might not might not really care about the answer. So is it easier <laughs> to blame another person or just something else? Like some, yeah. something okay, that's not a person. Okay, this was your original point. Yeah. And to me, it's the, the point is Doesn't moot. matter. I feel equally horrible. I actually feel more horrible bl- blaming another person. You seem to feel better about blaming another no, person. No, 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 no. I feel worse. I feel bad. I'm Brad. I'm with you. Okay. Whether you believe me or not, Brad. Blaming like something other than yourself, it does feel really, really whack. Yes. Really whack. But and that's kind of the rule now. I yeah. think after like four to six months of like dealing with you and this stuff, <laughs> it's like it became like a rule subconsciously yeah. or whatever. Um, so but, easy to identify when other people do it too. Yes, when fully. Like, well, I was. Yeah, and you feel it in yourself, even if you have the thought. Like yeah. you feel it. But so I was, I was thinking, wondering, and I guess it doesn't matter, right? Because the rule is the rule. But is it easier to blame a person? Because it's more comforting. No, I'm saying it's by easier, nature, no, it's easier to blame a thing because then you, then it's free. 
There's no guilt involved. The weather was bad. That's why we failed. Well, the weather doesn't get mad at you because whereas I'm like, hey, Echo screwed up and dropped the ball. That's why we failed. You are going to be mad at yeah. me. The weather is not going. Hey, you got a flat tire. That's why I'm late. You should have left earlier. No, 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 no. You're like uh, that's blaming. That's me taking ownership. Yeah, you know. But it's easy. But wouldn't it be more comforting to be like, hey, someone flat? Like, let's say you you walked out to your car and your tire was flat. Yeah. it'd be more comforting if someone was actively trying to get in your way because yeah, it seems more like okay, that's why I got defeated. I, by this situation because someone feelings. was actively I don't, doing I, I think to me saying hey I walked out yeah there was a nail in my thing yeah. now you might take that one step but somebody left a nail yeah see what I'm saying though <laughs> no, I mean I wouldn't I, I don't think I would maybe I would I don't, I don't know, know why you're you're sweating this distinction don't blame other people or other things that's what you do you don't yeah. blame other people or other things I'm reveling in the understanding don't revel in it just do huh just take action <laughs> yeah yeah you're right you're right Shack. and you know what we're going to wrap for today. We haven't even Roger. we haven't even covered the major the one of the main reasons why I'm covering this book we haven't even got to yet. So if we haven't even gotten to it yet, I I don't want to jump into it right now because we're, it's good. This is a book where I'm highlighting entire pages, <laughs> entire pages. I'm just so I I want to have time to discuss this properly and we will not have time to discuss the rest of this properly today. So one thing we do have hopefully time to discuss properly, it's questionable, because I know someone said the other day, uh, I said on the podcast, hey, all we need to do is you know just wrap this up. And they Mm -hmm. looked at their podcast player (laughs) and there was 47 (laughs) minutes left. So it took you 47 minutes, I'm blaming you. I know I I I am. I know I am at least partially guilty for lengthy sections of the podcast because what I can't refrain from doing is making a little comment that spurns you to talk about Hawaii Five O, other important topics, or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we'll continue with this book next week. Right now, if you if you want to compete, sure in life. Look, I'm not saying you got to look at life as one big competition, win or lose. But I'm saying you should at least consider that that's kind of happening whether you want it to be happening or not. Okay. In that in that view, mm-hmm. you want to get on a path, a path of victory, a path of discipline, a path of winning. And I know you have some things that might help us in there. Yes, sir, I do. Echo Charles. So it is one of these. So if you like the way you live your life, right? You're, mm-hmm. it's like you're preparing for a battle metaphorically or, or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Not, so yeah. sure, you're not competing with me or with whatever in, ev- in every single okay. little thing, right? In fact, you're a, a big part of what you do is collaborate with me. True. Good Collaborate point. with other people. But, but that's if, so we can win. So we can win. Exactly right. And in addition to that, if you, Wake up just one moment and you're in the the heated competition of whatever. You're going to be more prepared to win. Yes. Cool. If If you put yourself in stressful situations, you'll be more prepared when the real stress comes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So let's say jujitsu, for example. Good, right? stressful is, situation is, you can put yourself right into. Yeah, so on let, a let, daily basis. And think about this too, where you know the whole collaboration, competition, balance goes. Okay, me and you, we're competing in jujitsu with each other when we train, mm-hmm. right? Or or and we're competing with ourselves because you're using me to just get better in general. Sure. So sure, there's a part of it that's like you're trying to defeat me, whatever. But the main part is you're trying to defeat how you know the the gut yourself. Yes. Beat you know a month ago or a day ago, whatever. Yes. Trying to get better, right? And to do that, you have to collaborate with me, who's going to provide that stress. Yeah. On you. See, so it's always like, I think there's always an overarching competition. That's always. what's called That's the life. long game. Yeah. That's exactly. Life. Yeah. With varying levels of. Outcomes. Lots of little competitions along the way. Some of them are important. Some of them aren't. Some you got to surrender. Yeah. Because it's going to propel you further in the long game. Some of them will feel like they should be a competition when they should be a collaboration. They should be. Okay. Anyway, back to jujitsu. Okay, jujitsu. We're doing. We're all doing jujitsu. If you're not, then just do jujitsu. You, you have to. You yes. essentially have to 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 know the path. Broadly, one thing that's good about jujitsu is it is also. I talked about combat and war being a revealer. Jujitsu is revealing too. Oh, it yeah. reveals about things about yourself. It reveals things about human nature. It reveals, reveals things about your ego. It reveals things about your temper. It reveals a lot of things, and it reveals those things about other people. And you start to be able to sense and understand other people better because you see their reactions. You see how they respond. You mm-hmm. see how they get through or don't get through trying situations. Yeah, it's really And so there's some really good benefits beyond the fact that you will get a good workout, beyond the fact that you will truly learn to defend yourself in bad situations, you will also learn about life. Yes. You will learn about people and you will learn about yourself. Yes, sir. So go down to your local jiu-jitsu academy and tell them you want to train some of the jiu-jitsu. That's kind of abstract, though. The what you said, what it's true. Oh, you know, you'll learn about life. Not abstract. Sorry, it's not it's even general. Do. No, 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 no. Okay, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's general, though. Here's here's something specific. You what if I told you I've learned more about life yeah. and people and myself from jujitsu than I have learned about self defense from jujitsu? Yeah, and that's I, a bold statement. I don't know what that might not be specifically true because yeah. I don't think I've learned a lot. But I, you learned so much about actually fighting. Yes. See, so <laughs> That's kind of a, what I just said, not really. <laughs> it could be for others, though. There's but, a lot. Yeah. But I don't want to exaggerate well, he, and lie. Well, here's why we, well, here's why I started in, in whether, I mean, I think you started before this event. So, okay. So, there's, there's this family. They said, hey, we developed this martial art, you know, whatever. Is there a reason you're not saying the Gracie family? Yeah, well, I was gonna, I was gonna develop it into oh, a whole okay, story, okay, okay, cool, but cool, yeah. Cool. So Sorry, the Gracie family, they developed their martial art. They were like, "Hey, this is our fighting style, real fighting now." Yeah. So let's. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna invite everyone from the all around the world with whatever fighting style, no matter how big, no matter how small the guy is, whatever fighting style. We're gonna invite everybody to come, come like fight. No time limit, no rules, no nothing. Just everyone's gonna fight. See whose fighting style is the best, right? Sounds like an old school like movie or yeah, something, yeah. But it's true. Yeah, straight up happened. Nineteen ninety three, right? Yeah, Colorado. So they come and 
Hoist Gracie, who's 165 pounds. No, he's not 165 pounds. He's at he the was time he was 165. I don't. I don't think so. I think he was like 162 Maybe. or three. Actually, we'll check with Hoist. Yeah. You'll see one, two, three, one, six, one two, four. Dude, have you rolled with Hoist before? No. He's not small, bro. Yeah, he's tall. He's tall. But he's thinner, yeah. He's uh, thinner, but he's not, like, skinny. And he wasn't yeah. skinny back then. He must have weighed at least 180. I'm going to give him 180. We'll, we'll talk to Hoist and get confirmation. We'll talk yeah. to some of our people. I think 160. Yeah, anyway. If he was 160, I would have to check the scales. <laughs> yeah. Well, nonetheless. Now, have you ever heard that they reason Hoist was fighting and not Hickson is because Hoist was smaller and slender and looked less imposing, imposing yeah. than Hickson? Yeah. Who did look imposing. Right. Yeah. And that was kind of an added who looked, like. Who looked point. more imposing? Who looked more imposing? Hickson Gracie or Ken Shamrock? Ken Shamrock. Ken Shamrock looked real imposing. Oh, yeah. That's why it was so shocking. When Hoist at 160 pounds apparently tapped him out. Yeah. So the story, the story, the facts go. This is what happened. You can watch them on all, all the old videos. So they called it the ultimate fighting challenge is what they called it. The UFC. Sure. So Hoist Gracie surprisingly beats up everyone. This wasn't the kind of like you have one fight in no, one no, night. No. This yeah. is like There's four fights. In who, if you win, you go on. You know, no time limit, by the way. Full contact fighting. Headbutt. Like, whatever. Yep. Kick in the groin, whatever. Anyway, Hoist Gracie beats everybody, including Ken Shamrock, who's like, what? He was like 220. He was at ripped, least 220. Shoot, fighting wrestling, like just a yeah. badass guy. He went for a footlock. He went for a footlock, yeah. Which is crazy. And Hoist got on top, yeah. yeah. And Hoist knew to defend it. That's even crazier. Yep, got on top and choked him out. And then guys like who, I don't think people talk enough about this guy, Pat Smith. His name is Patrick oh, Pat Smith. Smith. was a beast, yeah. Bare knuckle kickboxing champion. It's like yeah. 250 and 0. That's what it said on the yeah. on the video. Um, just a tough, badass yeah, guy. Sure. He was beating guys up real bad. In fact, he beat this this ninja guy up yeah. on UFC 2. Yeah. That I was like, <laughs> as a kid watching, I was like, dang, that's like, this is brutal, man. This yeah. is like scary, brutal. And um, nowadays, that's nothing. You know, you watch yeah. the UFC now, it's nothing. But nonetheless, it was brutal then. And Hoist Gracie beat him up. And Hoist Gracie beat him up. He they, he didn't um, do a submission hold on him. He just had him in mouth. Oh, yeah. And just <laughs> punched him. He punching. tapped due to strike, yeah. you know. Anyway, so the point is Hoist Gracie with Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's interchangeable nowadays. Beat up everyone. Proving that it's like the ultimate fighting style. Yeah. So that's why. That's the number one reason I think most people go into jiu-jitsu. That's definitely a good reason. I think, well, back, that, I would say this. That's the number one reason in 1993, 1994, 1995 why people went into jiu-jitsu. I think jiu-jitsu now is, I think jiu-jitsu as a whole is more popular. You can get jiu-jitsu from anywhere. I mean, at wrestling tournaments, there's all kinds of kids. They walk around with jiu-jitsu t-shirts on. They didn't, yeah. why even, they weren't even close. They weren't even, they were, they're, 12 years old. Yeah. And now it's they don't remember 1993. Think about something that happened, whatever, 20 years before. What year were you born? 77. Think of something that happened in 1957. I can't think of one single thing. And that's what I'm saying. That's when the first UFC happened to yep. these kids, 20 years before they were born. Yeah. They don't remember it. It's not even a thing. But what they do remember is like, oh, some kid down the street knows how to fight. He choked me. I want to learn that. Yeah, well, if they're watching Ultimate Fight Night last night or the other night or whatever, 
And they saw Crone Gracie yes. choke out the guy in UFC yes. in the first round. Yes. Someone's going to join Jiu-Jitsu because of that. Anyway. That is true. Yes, that was true. A, a beautiful display of Jiu-Jitsu Very. From, Crone Gary, from Crone Gracie. Yeah, and it, that always feels good because it's a reminder. Because it's easy like now because everyone knows Jiu-Jitsu, you know, varying jiu-jitsu. levels or whatever in UFC. But when you get a guy who's like so good at Jiu-Jitsu every once in a while, like he'll, and Damian Maya would do this too, where they'd remind everyone like how powerful if you're just really yeah. good at Jiu-Jitsu and, and the other guy doesn't quite have yeah. those elements or whatever. It's, you know who it, reminds me of that? Dean Lister. He reminds yeah. me of that a lot. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Nonetheless, we're all doing jujitsu and we need a gi. What gi do we get? We get origin gis made in America. Yeah. Yep. From the cotton all the way up to the gi made in America for jujitsu. Not many other. Our martial arts as well, just for jujitsu, specifically. Not Aikido. They're not made for Aikido. No, they're made no. for jujitsu, yeah. made in America. They're, they're the best gis that Straight you up. can get. Oh yeah, there's not even any question about yeah. that one. OriginMain.com. Also got rash stuff. guards. Rash Good guards. Sure. If you need rash guards for your no gi situations, I got t-shirts, sweatshirts, jeans. jeans. Pete just sent me a picture of jeans coming off the rack. They're in production at this time. Good. Jeans. So be ready to get jeans. Also supplements. Mm-hmm. From Origin Labs, best kind of supplements, the kind that maintain your joints, joint warfare. I, str- uh, I incurred a hip injury mm, Yeah, the other day. It was really bad that night. So I, oh, I don't overdose. Can you overdose on joint warfare? I'm not sure. I haven't tried. So I add just one pill. Usually one. I take. How yeah, many do you take at night? Three. Okay. So I take I, three a day. Okay. I take three in the morning, three at night. Okay. So I went two and two. Okay. And I'm like, I'm just going to do this or whatever. And it. It was surprise. The difference between night one of the injury and night two of the inju- injury was surprising, given how the injury felt. There you go. So this is the, yeah. So joint warfare. And these are the in, now. I think these are the most important kind of supplements there is. I think I agree with you. Joint warfare, krill oil, discipline, and discipline go. When you need a little bit of. Need to get need to, need to get up on step is what we call it in the teams. Yeah. Well, and what that means is you're in a little zodiac boat, mm-hmm. and the zodiac boat going across the water with a 55 horsepower engine. If you're out on the on the west coast, on the east coast, they use a smaller engine. On the west coast, you use a big 55 horsepower engine because you're out in the Pacific and the waves are freaking huge. But the it reaches a point where it kind of f- the the boat's like trying to push and then it gets on the sur- it's like in the water and mm-hmm. then it gets kind of on the surface of the water mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it goes and then you're going fast you're on step yeah we'll call it getting on step i don't know where that comes from huh. but in a zodiac so it's like the perfect zone where it, yes, it, it can the catch zone. the water it catches the water it, the, it, the, it, the but boats. no drag yes yeah, it's, it's the minimum amount of drag for the boat and that's what I feel like when I take discipline. Go. Yeah. Let's say I gotta analogy. go. Let's say I'm going to meet with someone. I take like, you know, in a meeting, I'm going to be working with a company. Take some discipline. Go. Get the mind firing correctly. That's that. Don't forget about milk. Additional protein. Additional protein. A delicious yeah. way. Well, you can call it additional protein, or you can just call it dessert. Straight up. (laughs) Yesterday I had three scoops of Warrior Kid strawberry milk. And I was just sitting there drinking it and being happy about the whole world. 
guilt free guilt but <laughs> the whole but can you can you good. can a beverage make you happy to be alive yes yep. warrior kids strawberry <laughs> milk can make you it, can, uh, it yeah. can make you happy to just be in the world and just be looking and be sipping on it and being and having a whole a whole big cup and you're just every sip is you're not you're not even uh what's the word you're not even rationing yourself at all it's just yeah, blatant yeah. sipping <laughs> just free form yeah. just as much as you can put in your mouth like just yeah. beautiful strawberry milk yeah and there i'm really getting crazy now where i'm i've i'm really scatterbrained i'm like peanut butter milk all right <laughs> with the flavors yeah, yeah. yeah so anyways that's that very good all that stuff is at originmain.com also Jocko has a store it's called Jocko store mm. and that's where you can be on the path for sure be on the path requirement but if you want to represent while on the path go to jockostore.com got some cool shirts on there more rash guards yep more representative of the path specifically some hoodies on there, truckers some hats. hats. Yep. Truckers Good, hats specifically or flex fit. Whatever you like, bro. Both. However you want to represent. And here's the thing. Look, I don't I don't know if I'm going to put zip up hoodies on there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think so. <laughs> that might not be your thing. They better be so thick. Maybe they'll be that thick. the whole world that the whole world Maybe. stops and says, hmm. If I was in somewhere cold, I would wear that. That's what the whole world will say. Because actually that makes sense. If you go ultra thick with the zip up, the reason you want zip up is because you got other clothes on. It's awkward taking it on and off overhead. That's why you got the zip. Because it's it's a real heavy duty. I prefer the zip, light or heavy. Yeah. But you prefer the pullover as you indicated at one point. Like the pullover, if we're talking about, you know, medium weight. Yeah. But if we're going ultra heavyweight, which no one has showed me ultra heavyweight, I want to see ultra heavyweight. I want something that actually is hard to pick up, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> like physically heavy. All right. Yeah. Well, I think nonetheless, I think I'm going to go with some zip up stuff for Jocko's store. That's what I think. That's what I, I don't okay. know. Brainstorm. As you brainstorm that, let me see the samples and let me talk to the producers of the fabric. Yeah. So I can make sure that it is the heaviest and most durable and warmest fabric. All right. I will. I promise. All right. There it is. It's uh, Again, it's at jockostore.com. Go on there. If you like something, get something. Good way to represent while you're on the path. Also, Jocko White Tea. If you are a tea drinker or not a tea drinker, still drink Jocko White Tea for various reasons. So I gave some of this to my neighbor. We're doing some things, you know, and uh, she goes, oh, my gosh, yes. You know, like it was the one in the can. Mm-hmm. Um, so my wife gave her three of them and she's like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. This is so good. And it's so hard to find tea in a can that's certified organic. Yeah, Like that was the front running thing for Interesting. her. So I'm like looking at her like understanding that she has no idea that she can like deadlift 8,000 pounds now or you know like all these other added benefits but nonetheless (laughs) it really demonstrated how vast the uh, benefits you know and the peeling it's kind of a weird perspective to have on life when you when you rate certified organic over 
a guaranteed of deadlift of 8,000 pounds. I know, clinically, you know, it's crazy. That's a little bit strange. But nonetheless, after, you know, a little bit of thought, I understand. Because, you know, there's a nice lady that lives next door. And, um, you know, I dug it either way. But one of the added benefits was brought to the surface. And I liked it. Jack, speaking of uh, benefits, subscribe to the podcast, which we were going to stop saying until people noted that they didn't subscribe to the podcast right. until Echo actually said it on podcast 164 or no, 163, and someone's like, I listened to 163 podcasts and hadn't subscribed. So subscribe to the podcast or Echo will keep telling you to. And don't forget about the Warrior Kid podcast. Lagging, lagging on the Warrior Kid podcast. And I got told by young Alana, you know Alana? Sure. I got told by Alana's dad. Mm -hmm. She said, he he said she has memorized all the first to whatever it is, 21 podcast. Okay, it's good. And I said, I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, I'll make more. And she said, it's okay. But she didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she meant it. I uh-huh. think she was kind of like just being nice. She's yeah. a nice girl. I don't think she wanted to say, yeah, you should yeah. make some more podcasts. Because yeah. the first 21 are getting worn out. <laughs> Warrior Kid Podcast, a good podcast for kids to learn a really solid lessons about life. Don't forget about the Warrior Kid Soap, irishoaksranch.com, where Aiden, who is a warrior kid, is making soap. Got his own business. He's 13 years old. He's got his own business. He's got product moving. He's shipping stuff. He's got credit card. What is that thing called? The credit card system. <laughs> oh, like the, you can, yeah, the you point know, of sale got a shop, deal. Point of sale yeah, system yeah. running. You're 13 years old. Dang. Got a point of sale system running. Got production. Got manufacturing happening. Hey, it's soap. Is it an iPhone? No, but you know what? What were you doing at 13 years old? You weren't, you didn't have a manufacturing line set up, I don't no. think. So if you want to support kid, a kid, a warrior kid that's getting after it, irishoaksranch.com and get yourself some soap so that you can stay clean. Yeah. YouTube videos. Yes. If you like watching YouTube videos, that's not good. You probably don't need to watch YouTube videos. They're distracting, they take up a bunch of time. If you do feel the need, you might as well watch this YouTube video of this podcast or the smaller excerpts of this podcast that are clipped out. Or you can even watch Echo's legit videos, which are videos that Echo has modified with CGI, straight up. Straight up CGI, computer generated graphics. That's what Echo's good at. That's his thing. Sure. He's good at that, and he's good at curls. <laughs> <laughs> well, not as good as I was before. Yeah. Then. So subscribe to the YouTube channel, and then you can watch all these videos. Psychological Warfare. Don't forget about that. Echo is just showing me a funny thing on the gram. The gram. Instagram of a girl that was lip syncing a psychological warfare video and I have to say it was awesome I'm gonna try and find it and uh, put it out there so everyone can see this girl is super Fired up and good at lip syncing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she knows yeah, it was like spot-on spot-on like if you didn't know you or her like you'd be like bro This girl's voice is weird. Yeah. You know because she has your voice right because it's it looks really good Yeah, She did a good job with that psychological yeah, warfare little Assistance getting through moments of weakness in your day. I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you why you should do it, and then you'll go do it. 
Psychological Warfare, iTunes, Google Play, MP3 platforms. Check it out. Yes. Get some. Also, for legit fitness gear, while you're still with developing your home gym, which we always are, I still am, this is where you get your stuff. Go to onit.com slash chocolate. A lot of good stuff on there. I just got a Stormtrooper. Oh, wait. I told you this last yes, time. You did. Okay, so I made a mistake. So Stormtroopers are not clones. Stormtroopers are like... Individual humans. Yeah, that they raise from kids or whatever. Oh. Clones are uh, the clones from the Clone War who came from Bobo Fett or Jango Fett, one of them. Once again, bro, you're out of my league. You're yeah, out of my well, I was talking out of my... I got scolded by my brother and various uh, people oh, yeah, for yeah. not knowing my I'm Star sure Wars. Jade Charles jumped on you like you just... He was literally listening to it in my presence. I didn't know he was listening he got to mad it. At you. He paused it. He's like, "Brah," and I'm like, "You know, one of these, you know, kind of like your wife's like." <gasps> he was like that kind. Yeah. And I was like, uh, yeah. "Yeah," and he's like, "These stormtroopers aren't." And he was he was mad. Nonetheless, yeah. I still got the stormtrooper kettlebell, which has nothing to do with any clones. It's just dope, and it's a kettlebell, <laughs> which is good for you know you're working out and stuff. Anyway, I got it from on it. That's where they have the best the best kettlebells, the best stuff. Go in there, get something from there. The, it's really good stuff. On it.com slash Jocko. We also have some books. What kind of books? Well, books for reading, I guess you might say. Yep. Mikey and the Dragons. How do you like Mikey and the Dragons? Outstanding. How often do you read it? So I read, it's not on any kind of rotation, but I've read it three times to the children, yeah. And did they support? Yeah. So, you know what's funny? They Not only do they like reading it, they like watching the video, which, and I'm working on the whole book video. Yeah. So, when I work on it or whatever, they, you know, the, I'm not always uninterrupted. We'll say that. So, they'll see me working on that. Then I get uh, constant interruption because they want to watch it. They want to see it. But, it, I mean, I, I dig it because it is fun. Yeah. It's really yeah. good book. Mike and the Dragons, little lessons for kids in that book. It's probably meant for a little bit younger ages than the other kids' books I've written, Way of the Warrior Kid and Way of the Warrior Kid 2, Mark's Mission. And now we have Way of the Warrior Kid 3. I'm trying to get that up for pre-order on Amazon. The subtitle is Where There's a Will. And some challenges presented to Mark in this latest book. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, Uncle Jake is around to guide him and show him the path. Mm. Also, we got Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. It explains all the people that ask, what's your workout? What did you eat? What time did you sleep? All those questions are all in there. Mm -hmm. And then all the questions that are, how do you get, how do you get out of bed? How do you, when you want to procrastinate? What do you do when you're tired? What do you do when you're angry? What do you do when you're afraid? All those questions, and put all those questions in one big book. It's called the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. And it's, a book that you can give to someone and they will be happy. Sure. And they will not they will they will get more from the book than just a good read. Yeah. They'll get a little shift in their perspective in life and they might even hopefully get themselves heading down what we like to call the path. Yep. The path of discipline. I think you were right about that when you say that it's like the book that you sort of wish you had. Oh, for sure. Like when you, I would say, 
maybe not when I was like a teenager because I don't think I would have the capacity to like yeah to accept you know this kind of but like young adulthood maybe like 23 23 ish yeah that'd be like man and what's crazy is I've got people that are 54 yeah one of the coolest things was I I met a woman at the muster she was like 55 years old and she was all excited she saw me and she's like hey and I was like hey and we, we were working out, and we got done with the workout. Oh, you started in the gym or something? No, 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 in the, in the oh, PT in the morning. muster. Yes, yes, yes. And she says to me, she says, you know why I'm here? And I was said, actually, I have no idea why you're here mm. or how you got here. And she was in Costco or Walmart or Target and saw the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. And she just looked at it and said, I'm buying this. I don't even know what it is. I'm buying it. <laughs> got home, opened up, read it. Next day, gets up 4.30 in the morning, starts working out. Like, that's what we're that's talking a, about. Uh, From zero. This is a person that doesn't know anything about me, about the podcast, about any of the other books. Just that one book picks it up and says, "This, I'm just going to get this. Yeah. And she was fired up. She, she lost weight. She's just crushing things. So that's a good book to get for yourself. It's a book that I read. It keeps me on the path. And if you want the audio version, it's on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, other MP3 platforms. There's obviously Extreme Ownership, first book I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. It's about leadership. It's about the leadership principles we learned in combat and how you can apply them. And then I talked about dichotomy of leadership today because sometimes we can take any principle and we can go too far in one direction or another. That can cause major derailment of your organization, your team, your life. So read the dichotomy of leadership so you can know and understand and recognize the pitfalls of going too far in one direction or the other. On top of those two books, we got a little company called Echelon Front. It's a leadership consultancy. And what we do is we solve your problems through leadership. That's what we do. Whatever problems you're having in your organization, those problems are a leadership problem. No matter what those problems are, they're a leadership problem. That's what they are. And if you want to get those problems fixed, go to echelonfront.com and we'll be in touch. Also, the muster which is a leadership conference 2019. We got May 23rd and 24th in Chicago. We got September 19th and 20th in Denver. We got December 4th and 5th in Sydney. All of our shows we've ever done have sold out. These are going to sell out too. If you want to come to them, go to extremeownership.com and work it out. EF Online just launched EF Online in January. If you can't come to the muster, if you are living in a situation where you can't come to the muster, you can't afford the muster, but you really want to get the information from the muster, awesome. You liked extreme ownership and you want to get more out of it, awesome. You like listening to the podcast and you want to dig a little deeper, awesome. All those situations is why we made something called EF Online. Had a company 18 months ago. Guy said, hey, I want you to train everyone in my organization. I said, yeah, do it, no problem. And then I was like, wait a second. How many people do you have? 87,000 globally. <laughs> Guess what? I, I was like, okay, let me, uh, let me, let me get back to you. Because I humanly, physically could not do that. So I, I had to think about how we're going to scale this thing. We talked to Leif. I'm like, 
let, let's go let's go digital and it's a little scary because in the navy we did like the digital training sometimes online hr type training and it was all lame yeah and so i was nervous about it but once once we saw the new technology mm. which exists which is awesome that's what we did so we spent the last year putting it together it's interactive you do role plays you put yourself in combat situations as a leader you put yourself in business situations as a leader you got frequently asked questions you got all kinds of choose your own adventure scenarios that oh, unfold yeah. and you get the briefings and explanations and details around the principles of combat leadership it's all in there so if you want to check that out it's at ef online.com efonline.com and also we have ef overwatch where we are finally taking combat proven leaders from special operations and combat aviation and we're putting them into companies that need leaders that understand the principles that we talk about in the books and on this podcast so ef overwatch Dot com is where you go if you are either someone that's looking for talent or someone that's looking for a change of careers after you're done with your military career. We're waiting for you there. And if you want to talk to Echo and I more, if if three hours wasn't enough, if you need to tell us something else or you want to tell us something else or you want to ask us something else, that's cool. We are on the interwebs. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram and we are on that Facebook. And Echo is at Echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink. And of course, thanks to everyone that is out there in uniform holding the line. Our military personnel, police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, correctional officers, border patrols, all you first responders. Thanks for everything that you do to keep our safety and security intact. And to everyone else that's out there listening, remember what this book said, and that's remember that real defeats other than death itself are psychological in nature. And that the important contests in life itself are psychological in nature. So know who you're dealing with. Know who you can count on. Know your enemy and what his strengths and weaknesses are. And most important, know yourself. Know your own nature so you can avoid the pitfalls that we are all susceptible to. Know yourself so you can stand up in any situation and keep getting after it no matter what. So until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.